Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here are your hosts, John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kirtley. Hi, this is Dave. And this is John. And welcome to episode 85 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Joe Hill, author of the horror novels Heart-Shaped Box and Horns, the short story collection 20th Century Ghosts, and the graphic novel series Lock and Key from IDW. His latest novel, Nosferatu, is out now. Then stick around after the interview as guest geek Brittany Jaragatellis joins us for a panel discussion on recent horror movies. All right, so let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with Joe Hill. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on, guys. I appreciate it. All right, so first of all, just tell us a bit about your new novel, Nosferatu. What's it about? Right, so the new book uh, is called NOS4A2, which is actually the vanity license plate of the villain's 1938 Rolls-Royce Wraith. And the book is about a very old fella named Charlie Manx. He's 140 years old, and he has this terrible car that runs on human souls. And he survived by years, for years, by draining the spirits out of his passengers who tend to be children. And he drains them until there's not much left inside them. And then he dumps them in this place that isn't in our world called Christmas Land. Uh, this sort of terrible amusement park. And the story is about the one kid that got away from him. And then, what happens when that kid grows up and Charlie comes back looking for revenge? Uh, so you mentioned the vanity plate of Nosferatu. Did you see that la actual license plate somewhere? and Or did you decide on the concept for the book and then come up with the license plate? I don't know where I came up with the license plate, but I do like titles that are puzzles. I think anytime you can play a game with the reader or ask the reader an interesting question, You've started a sort of a conversation. You've engaged them and it, the readers want to be engaged. You know, and I think that when we, as we started to move towards bringing the book to press, there was some concern that the title might turn people off because they'd look at it and say, NOS 4A2, what's that mean? But I always thought getting people's attention and forcing them to pause for a second to try to puzzle out what it meant would be an advantage, not a disadvantage, because it makes the book kind of intriguing. It was funny, actually, you know, because I got the galley for this book, and then I just kind of glanced at it, and then I went out and met John at a reading, and he was talking about, he's like, the new Joe Hill book, Nosferatu. And I was like, no, that's not what it was. And he's <laughs> like, no, it is. It's Nosferatu. Like, look at it. That's what it spells out, you know? <laughs> yeah, I do think I, I do think that some people get it right away. Some people get it after a couple minutes, and some people don't get it for a couple weeks. And the book is preoccupied with puzzles and games and uh, how two people can hear the same thing, but hear different things. The lead character is a woman named Vic McQueen, who when we first meet her is a child, and uh, a child with a quite remarkable gift, an unlikely power, uh, a, a power which corresponds, she has her own power and it corresponds to the, the power that Charlie Manx has. Vic has uh, uh, Raleigh Toughburner bicycle. And when she goes for rides on this bicycle, she can find her way to an impossible bridge. And the bridge spans the distance between lost and found. If she's looking for something, if there's something Vic is trying to find, 
whatever that thing is, is always on the other side of the bridge, even if it's hundreds of miles away. So she's looking for the answer to a question once, and she takes her bicycle down to this bridge, and she rides across it and comes out in Iowa, where there's a woman, uh, this sort of punk rock librarian, who can answer this question that she's been carrying around inside her. And Vic gets older. Over the course of the story, uh, Vic faces Charlie Manx, and that encounter changes her life. And she grows up uh, to become a troubled young woman and mother. And she's also a woman who creates a series of books called Search Engine. And these books are kind of like Where's Waldo? Uh, Where's Waldo for the 21st century? And the fact that she makes a living from these kind of abstract puzzles, these puzzle books, plays very well into the idea that her life itself is full of unresolved puzzles. And so this is all a very long way of saying I wanted the title to reflect some of those preoccupations. So the title itself is kind of a, you know, is kind of a lateral thinking puzzle. Well, you mentioned um, Vic's Bicycle. The Was it a tough burner, I think? Yeah, the, it's a um... Raleigh tough burner. When she's a grown-up, she loses that bicycle. But when she's a grown-up, she comes across a battered old Triumph Bonneville, a 1968 Triumph Bonneville motorcycle, and fixes it up. And that becomes her new ride and can serve the same purpose that the old ride could. Mm-hmm. But I mean, could you? T- I mean, you're very specific about the models of, you know, the, the bicycle, the motorcycle, and Charlie Manx's car. Could you just talk about why you chose those particular vehicles uh, for the story? Well, one of the things about Nosferatu is that Nosferatu, in some ways, is sort of my unified theory of everything. You have these characters, you have Vic, you have Manx, you have a character named Maggie Lay, who have very unnatural and incredible powers. And I provide what I hope is a fairly elegant explanation for where these powers come from. And that explanation actually plays back into my earlier books. Uh, it actually explains some things in Horns and in Heart-Shaped Box. You know, and basically the idea is that everyone lives in two worlds. There's the real world, or what we think of as the real world, a world of gravity and physics, uh, a world of bad jobs and bad hair. So that's sort of, that's the world, the solid world that we all know. But everyone also has one foot in another world, um, the inner world of thought. I think that some philosophers would actually argue that that world is more real, that that world is the only world we ever really know. So we all have our own inner landscape or an inscape. And in our inscapes, emotions have the force of gravity. And uh, imagination has a kind of solidity to it, uh, a kind of inner reality. Characters like Vic and Charlie have vehicles that they can use to pull the stuff of their inscape into the real world. Vic can use her vehicle, her Triumph Bonneville, to bring this imaginary bridge into actual being in the same way that Charlie Manx can use his wraith to bring the world of Christmas land into being in the same way that Ig Parish can use it in horns, can use a treehouse uh, to bring his devilish powers into existence. And so that's where we get Vic's motorcycle and we get, Ma- get Manx's car. Maggie has a bag of Scrabble tiles that she can use like an oracle to spell messages about hidden truths. 
And my only rule is it has to be something you love. You can only access that inner world of thought and bring it through into our world um, by using some sort of talisman that you love, that you care about passionately. Well, like your author photo shows you riding a motorcycle, and I saw a video of you, a sort of promo video of you riding a motorcycle that I think was a triumph. Is that yeah, I have a triumph. Of... yeah, I have, a, I have, I have. It's not, it's not a cool Steve McQueen 1968 triumph Bonneville. It's a modern day triumph. But yeah, that's my that's my bike of choice. I'm not a hardcore motorcycle guy, but I do think it's cheap therapy. You know, uh, therapy is $100 a session, $125 a session or something. And, you know, you can get an hour of therapy on a Triumph for about three bucks and 40 cents or whatever it costs for a gallon of gas right now. Well, I, th I thought it was funny on that, on your blog, you said, you know, in this video, I'm not wearing a helmet, but kids, you should always wear your helmet. You know? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, the guy who shot that video said, there's a lot of motorcycle stuff in the book. I think we should film you on your motorcycle. And I said, that's great. You know, it's the first week of March and that there's three feet of snow on the ground. Uh, but I said we would go for it if we had even halfway decent weather. And we did. It turned out the day we shot that video, it was a little over 50 degrees uh, and pretty clear. And so I said, let's go for it. And he suction cupped a video camera to the uh, gas tank of the Triumph. And I realized at that moment that I wouldn't be able to wear my helmet. Uh, because you wouldn't be able to see who was riding the bike if I did. And that was some bitter cold riding. <laughs> oh, I was crying. I mean, I was out there for about 15, 20 minutes and I had tears running down my face and it was just, you know, it was just a, a, a nasty blast of cold, uh, but kind of fun. It was, it was still fun. It's always fun to get out on the bike. Uh, was Charlie Manx's car being a Wraith a nod to the 1986 movie Wraith, which is about a demon car? Is there a 1986 movie about a demon car? I had no idea. <laughs> I just, I, you know, the Rolls Royces have had a lot of great names. There's the Phantom, there's the Silver Wraith, there's the Ghost. And I really spent a lot of time trying to decide between the three. And at one time, at one point, I think that the book was actually a 1938 Silver Wraith. But when I did my research, uh, you know, I try never to do any research until I'm up to the second or third draft because it makes so much more trouble for me that way. You know, I could, <laughs> I could do the research up front and know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I prefer to just make crap up and bury myself in trouble. And then later I have to figure, figure out how I'm going to dig my way out when it turns out the facts have nothing to do with what I stated in my story. Um, there was no silver race until like the early 1940s. And I wanted the car to be almost as old as Charlie himself. Uh, cause Charlie Manx is about 140 years old. So I knew it had to be a really early model of, of Rolls Royce. And what I came across, the best one, the one that was sinister looking and looked powerful and had a great name and suited the character was the 1938 Rolls Royce Wraith, which was the very first model of the Wraith. Well, you, uh, actually speaking of research, I mean, I was just curious about what kind of, some of the research you did, like in particular the Savoy Florain, is that a real thing? And how did you find out about that? Yeah, I was dosed up with Savoy Florain when uh, I had to have my molars re removed. And uh, it was an interesting experience. And afterwards, I thought, wow, that stuff is evil. I have <laughs> got to stick that in a book. Uh, so I've been holding on to Savoy Florain for a little while. Um, Savoy Florain, for those you know who haven't read the book, Charlie Manx is a kind of vampire. He is the Dracula of the American highways. Uh, but he doesn't, I, 
I find most vampire novels so disappointing. I don't think vampires are sexy, um, just like I don't think leeches are sexy. I have not been able to get into the whole romanticization of vampires that's been popular since the Anne Rice books and has sort of increased with time. And, you know, I didn't want Charlie Mank to be the kind of vampire that sucks blood and sleeps on dirt. So he's kind of a soul vampire. He uses his car to drain his victims, and it makes him young, and it makes him powerful, and and ties him to the car and makes him into a kind of immortal. And so Charlie has a henchman, just as Dracula had Renfield. Uh, Charlie has a henchman. Over the course of his life, he's actually had several henchmen, but the one that we spend most of our time on in the book is a fellow named Bing Partridge, who... Um, has a bit of a tragic past, uh, did some things that probably weren't very nice to his parents, and uh, has a bit of a fascination with gas masks and toxic gases. Uh, he works at an industrial plant uh, and spends a lot of time uh, working with chemicals and gases. And he has easy access to sevuflorane, which is a gas that you can use to sort of strip people of their will and knock them out. You can knock them out, but or in light doses, you can kind of uh, uh, turn them into zombies. And uh, Bing is very useful to Charlie. Charlie wants the life force to send children, but doesn't have much use for their parents. So usually he has Bing deal with the parents. The rule that they have, the deal that they have, is Charlie gets the children and Bing gets the mothers. And the sevuflorine, it smells like gingerbread, which ties really nicely into the whole Christmas theme. Is that... Yeah, it smells like gingerbread in my story. Oh, okay. Uh, in real life, uh, I think that it can be flavored any of a number of ways or have no smell whatsoever. You know, Charlie Manx is actually obsessed with Christmas, and throughout the book, Christmas is made to seem really sinister and creepy. Uh, was that a strategic move on your part so that you would get a bunch of free publicity of Fox News decried it as part of the war on Christmas? <laughs> no. I was thinking about Lon Chaney had a great line where he said, there's nothing funny about a clown at midnight. And I think that that's partially the horror writer's job to create unsettling juxtapositions. You know, you find something that seems harmless and innocent and pair it with uh, aspects that are disconcerting, uh, that are disturbing. And so Christmas is a joyous occasion. It's a time of pleasure and family. But there's something about Christmas songs in the middle of the summer that's not quite right. And Charlie's victims who wind up in Christmas land, they're these kind of frozen ghouls with too many teeth. And they're still children, but there's nothing left in them except for a sense of fun. For them, every day, every morning is Christmas morning, and every night is Christmas Eve, and everything is a chance for fun. You know, playing games, riding on the amusements in the Christmas land amusement park, you know, and playing sadistic games like Scissors for the Drifter. It's all a good time. I think that fun is important in a life, but if that's all there is, um, you can't be a sort of morally fully formed person um, without regrets, without guilt, without a sense of shame. How would you ever learn decency? You know, much is made especially in American society about the wonder of childhood innocence. But, you know, innocent children are happy to burn ants with a magnifying glass because they don't know better. You know, it takes a sense of guilt, shame, and maturity 
to realize that sometimes your actions can be really unpleasant or painful for others. Well, there's a line in the book where Manx is trying to justify himself, and he says the children that he takes away live forever. Yeah. Um, which which seems to be a pretty compelling argument. I mean, whatever yeah. else you might say of it. I think if you ask Charlie, he'd say he's the hero of Nosferatu, no doubt. You know, that he is absolutely the good guy. He saved, he has dedicated his life to saving children from death and from shame and from all the painful stuff that comes with adulthood. The only problem is it's, it's cost them their souls. And so I don't think that that is a good trade-off. But one of the mistakes you get in a lot of genre entertainment, whether it's horror or fantasy or science fiction, is you have these bad guys who are just so horribly bad to the point where you just have to write them off as sadistic sociopaths because there's no reasonable moral position for their arguments, um, you know, for their beliefs. But, you know, in real life, it doesn't really work that way, you know, um, um, when, when someone you know, commits an atrocity, and you ask them, why did you do it? They say, I had to. And they can explain, you know, not always very cogently, but they can explain why they had to do it. It had to happen. Those people had to die. You know, oftentimes it has to do with their own sense of, you know, being wronged, or the world is unfair, the world is unjust, and so someone had to get shot in the face a couple times. Um, you know, I really wanted the bad guy of Nosferatu, to be someone who could say, no, no, you misunderstand. I'm the good guy. I'm the hero here. It's these other people who are to be blamed for the evil in the world, for the evil in this story. Actually, you know, speaking of explaining the villain, I heard you actually say that you wrote a whole novella yeah. as part of this book to explain Manx's backstory, and you ended up taking it out. Could you talk about that? Well, I write a lot of material in first draft that never makes it into the finished book. You know, People's time is so precious. Um, people have so little free time. And right now, this is the best age for entertainment that has ever been. We're just drowning in a sea of entertainment. There are so many wonderful games, so many great TV shows, so many amazing novels. People can't keep up with it all. You know, you can only pick and choose a few items from the buffet. Um, and I, I feel like, in the case of my novels, Every bit, every scene has to fiercely defend itself as, as a scene that stands, that's exciting and entertaining in its own right. You know, every scene should almost be like a, a miniature little short story that does something compelling and that gets the reader pumped up and makes them want to keep turning the pages. But it takes a while to get there. And in my first drafts, a lot of times my first drafts are very, very messy. And there tends to be mountains of material that the reader doesn't really need. Stuff that I wrote for me, there's a lot of stuff, a lot of character moments and a lot of backstory that I wrote so that I can understand who I'm writing about fully. So there's, I, you know, in the course of working on Nosferatu, for example, there was a novella that was 110 pages long that talked about when Charlie Manx was a younger man living in Kansas and uh, had he was on his first marriage and he had a couple daughters. And it tells the story of how he bought the wraith and uh, when he made his first trip to Christmas land. And uh, I had a, I had a really good time writing that story. And I think in some ways it's a pretty interesting story. But when I got into third draft, uh, I made the decision to just chop the whole thing out because I came to feel that Charlie was 
more scary the less of them we saw. I think that often that's true, you know, that that's a good thing to keep in mind about villains. The shark in Jaws is the most terrifying bad guy in the whole history of film, and he's almost never on camera. We almost never see him. It's not seeing him that makes him scary. And I think if you look at a character like Hannibal Lecter, Hannibal Lecter was never more terrifying than in Red Dragon, the first book in which he appears, and he's only in it for about 14 pages. And he's almost as scary in Silence of the Lambs, where we only get him for about 25 pages. He's on screen with Jodie Foster for only about 12 minutes. But when you walk away from Silence of the Lambs, it's your memory of Hannibal Lecter that dominates your memory of that picture. His relationship with Clarice Starling is what you remember about that film. You know, the problem with Hannibal Lecter is there's been book after book since then about him, uh, movie after movie, and now there's going to be a TV series. And, you know, familiarity breeds contempt. Uh, the more we know about Hannibal Lecter, the less terrifying he becomes and the more comfortable we are with him. I think the same is even, you can see the same in an even more exaggerated way with Darth Vader, who was the baddest ass in all the universe in the first two Star Wars films. But, you know, we had the prequels, and we had Return of the Jedi, and, you know, we found out that, you know, he was a whiny, pathetic teenager with mummy issues, and he, he just wasn't frightening anymore. He was just, instead, he was, he's just kind of a, you know, a weenie with a nasty burned face and a helmet. So do you think, does that mean you're going to burn that Charlie Manx novella, or is there any hope it'll ever be released in some form? Well, the Charlie Manx novella is actually going to appear as part of the package of a limited edition that Subterranean Press is doing. But I sort of included it there as a kind of literary curiosity. And I do think, I mean, I do think that it has some appeal. I just think there was no place to put it in the book where it wouldn't slow things down. Uh -huh. But for the truly interested, it's included in um, the limited edition of Nosferatu that Subterranean Press is doing. Some of that material will be lightly adapted for a comic book I'm doing, which is called Wraith which will appear later in the year from IDW, and is a kind of Nosferatu spinoff. It includes a couple of the characters we meet in Nosferatu, but is largely a different story about a different, you know, completely different set of characters, and it's set in a different time period from Nosferatu, and it somewhat fleshes out both Charlie Manx and, and the world of Christmas Land. It's not essential to enjoy Nosferatu, and you don't need to read Nosferatu to enjoy the comic book, but the two things do sort of hold hands in a hopefully interesting way. And I guess we should say that Nosferatu, as it is, is already an extremely long book. I mean, it's longer than, or it's about as long as your previous two novels put together. Yeah. Yeah, I was yeah. just curious, did you set out to set, did you start out saying I'm going to write a big ambitious book? Yeah, I, I, I felt like the first two books were compact in a way that I felt I had a high sense of safety about. You know, I felt comfortable. I, I felt like they moved very quickly and, you know, had a lot of good set pieces in them. And at only 325 pages, there was no real risk that people were going to find it uh, too heavy to plow through. But, I don't want that to be every book. I, you know, I wanted to see if I couldn't press myself a little harder and do something on a, uh, with a slightly larger scope. I had never done a book that really shifted across multiple perspectives. And I wanted to do that in a book. I wanted to do a book where we had many points of view instead of just one or two. Um, I wanted to cover a lot of time. You know, uh, Heart Shaped Box is a book that largely takes place in about three or four days. Horns does look at a 
reasonably long period of time, but for the most part is focused on a single weekend. In the case of Nosferatu, we have a much larger scale, both in terms of time and numbers of characters. And, you know, I thought that that was, that I, you know, it might be fun to try to go big and do something on a larger scale. If I succeeded, then it won't hopefully feel like a big book to people. It will feel like a fast book. You'll, you know, it will be something that people can read, read quickly and have fun with. And, and, you know, you always want to leave people wishing there was more instead of less. There's that old show business adage. You don't want to stay on stage until the applause stops. Hmm. Actually, I was curious about Manx's backstory. I mean, you mentioned that Charlie Manx is, he's like 140 years old. And so he speaks in this very amusingly out of, <laughs> yeah. out of date. Uh, kind of way. Did you yeah. base that on any particular person, or where did you come up with those little out-of-date kind of phrases? I had a hard time with Manx's voice at first. It, that, Manx was the hardest part of the book to write, and I circled around him for most of a year. You know, I, I, I wrote as much of the book as I could without really dealing with Manx. And the, well, I'm just talking about first draft, because by the time people read the book that comes out, Manx is right there, right up front. You know, eventually I got it, and I got, I, you know, formed a vision of his character that I was happy with. But he was hard to do at first. And the first thing that I got about him that really made sense to me was realizing that he doesn't usually speak in contractions. Uh, he won't say, I can't do that. He will say, I cannot do that. You know, he won't say, I'm. He'll say, I am. And for me, that just feels somehow more 19th century, that there's something about his speech. It's He is both sort of a country guy but also weirdly prim and has a kind, there is a kind of primness in his speech and an unwillingness to use a certain kind of language. I, I haven't seen Deadwood and I'm looking forward to seeing Deadwood. And I have sort of reluctantly come around to the idea that people on the frontier might have used uh, a certain kind of language that you won't nor normally get in network TV, for example. But in my heart of hearts, I don't think most people talked that way in the 19th century. Not if they wanted to be accepted into polite company. And so, you know, Charlie Manx almost never uses obscenities. And I think he finds the sound of obscenities, um, especially in the mouths of women, very, you know, vile and upsetting. You know, it makes him want to reach for the soap to wash someone's mouth out. And to me, that just feels like the point of view of a, a somewhat ignorant dude from the 19th century um, who has ideas about, you know, daddy knowing best and women belonging in the kitchen or in the bedroom. You know, and that also may tie in a little bit to his idealization of children. Uh, so you mentioned that you were writing this uh, comic, this Wraith comic, uh, and, you know, one of the characters in the book is a comic book fan named Lewis Carmody. Yeah. Uh, has, has your experience as a comic book professional shaped that character at all? Well, for sure, Lou, Lou is easy to write about because I know Lou. You know, you can find Lou Carmody at, you know, in the comic business or at comic conventions. There is a, uh, I, I, you know, feel a lot of goodwill for Lou. Uh, because I know exactly where he's coming from, and I like a lot of the same things he likes. Lou has his, you know, has his issues and stuff, and um, but he has a lot of courage, a lot of very simple, quiet courage, and and that's one of the reasons why I, I love that character. And I do think that he formed that his sense of courage from reading Captain America. And you know, you know, I've been to Comic Con I think for the last five years. This is San Diego Comic Con. 
and WonderCon. And, you know, you do hear stories now and then about people cutting in line or being rude and, and, um, you know, or being, you know, inappropriate. But it's amazing to me how basically decent most of the people at those conventions are. You know, if someone is, you know, moving through the crowd in a wheelchair, people around them are aware of it and make space and try to help out, make sure that that person is having a good time. Um, and I, I do think that people who, you know, love comics and superhero stories and cape stories have internalized some good messages about being decent to others. Well, I mean, one character in Nosferatu who's never going to be mistaken for a hero is the security guard character, Hicks. <laughs> and this is just, this character, he was just so fascinating to me because really his only role in the story is to get knocked unconscious in one scene. But <laughs> you give us this whole colorful backstory for him, and it's it's just so funny. Uh, so could you just talk about just how did that character come to you and why did you yeah. decide to flesh him out so much? Well, originally, originally, okay, so there's one scene. So for a little while, Charlie Manx dies. It's not as big a deal to him as it is to us. You know, um, it's, he's briefly inconvenienced by death, but don't worry, he gets over it. <laughs> um, but he does spend about 24 hours in a morgue in Denver. And while he's there, there's an unpleasant security guard named Hicks who likes to take selfies, you know, use his cell phone to take pictures of himself, usually with dead celebrities. And we get this whole story about the different famous people who have died, who he's been able to take pictures of himself with. And he decides he wants to take a picture of himself with Charlie Manx because Charlie Manx has a reputation as a serial killer and child murderer. A somewhat false reputation because he's not exactly a serial killer. But in any event, um, it's believed that he is and he dies. And Hicks decides to go take a picture with him, which is where he is when Manx stops being dead and starts being alive again. Originally, that scene which is uh, sort of darkly comic. That was the original prologue of the book, actually. And then later it was moved into chronological order. It was I, Later I, I was persuaded to stick it in the middle of the book. But I've kept it in, you know, and it doesn't really, it tells this one short story about a character, you know, this guy Hicks and his encounter with Charlie Manx. And we never see Hicks again. It's just this one thing. Basically, I wrote that and kept it in the book because it's really funny to read in public. <laughs> uh, that 15-page segment reads really well. And I thought, well, I'm going to go on the road. I'm going to do a book tour, and I want to have something that will make people laugh, and this is it. So um, I think that that's an okay reason to keep a scene in a book. Well, and I saw that that's online, so people, if they're curious, you know, they could go check that out. And... Yeah, we've actually wound up sharing three different scenes from the book online. I think there's a few places where you can download or read portions of Nosferatu. I do worry about spoilers, but at the same time, the book is 700 pages long. So I guess if we share 30, we haven't done too much damage. You know, that's less than that's less than 10 percent. There are actually there are also these really interesting illustrations in the book. Yeah. Um, and one of them is sort of a map of Charlie Manx's dream world. It's called an Inkscape. I think it's the map of, you know, the American United Inkscapes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but there are these kind of different cities along the route. And one of them is called the Pennywise Circus. Yeah. which is presumably a reference to the evil clown in Stephen King's novel It. Is that just a little in-joke, or do you see some bigger connection? Yeah, the between... elephant in the room here is that Steve King's my dad. <laughs> um, I, I hear you stepping around <laughs> um, because I spent a lot of the first 12, 13 years of my career stepping around it. Uh, but, you know, I've sort of relaxed about that a little bit, and there is a certain amount of Stephen King play in the book. I just, at some point, midway through working on Nosferatu, you know, I've thought, 
I've kind of wrestled my whole life about how best to deal with, you know, the fact that I'm a writer and I write scary fiction and that my dad does that. And, you know, and I, I went to exaggerated lengths very early in my career to avoid being connected to my dad. I, I dropped my last name. I started writing as Joe Hill and I was able to write and publish as Joe Hill without anyone connecting me to my father, uh, for a little over 10 years. And, you know, I was able to sell my first book of stories and then, and then later Heart Shaped Box before it was largely public knowledge about who my dad was. At some point, though, working in Nosferatu, I just kind of felt myself relax about it. You know, I'm, cause I'm really proud of my dad. I love my dad. He's one of my best friends. I love his books. You know, much of what I write, I write because of who my dad is and, and the things that I learned reading Stephen King novels. And at a certain point, working on Nosferatu, I thought, maybe I'd like to have fun with it. Instead of shying away from it and avoiding it, you know, like a dangerous infection, maybe it would be fun to goof on Stephen King a little bit, you know, to to sort of goof on some of my dad's stories. And so there's a reference to the Pennywise Circus in Maine. There's a reference to Midworld. And there are a few other sort of Where's Waldo Stephen King bits in Nosferatu, which I'm kind of proud of, that I stuck in there. And they don't mean anything. They're just a goof. Hmm. You know, it was just me fooling around. Well, actually, you know, speaking of the period of your life where nobody knew who you were and you were just a, another uh, aspiring writer just submitting yeah. work to magazines, you know, you submitted a bunch of stories to the magazine of fantasy and science fiction uh, yeah. when John was the assistant editor there. Yeah. And he kept passing them up to the main editor, Gordon, who rejected them. Yeah. So I guess we're just we're just wondering just how much does it eat you up inside knowing that John Joseph Adams could have been the editor that pulled you from the slush pile and gave you your first big break? It's really just one of many reasons why I don't like John. <laughs> you know, no, I tried, I mean, man. It's, I tried. It's it the list is almost really too long to summarize in the here <laughs> today, but that that's certainly central to my feelings of loathing for for John and John's work <laughs> and personal life. No, um no, I mean, you know, the ma magazine of fantasy and science fiction was always really nice to me. I mean, I got my share of form rejections. Sometimes people ask, well, how was I able to keep my connection to my dad's secret for so long? And I had a powerful weapon on my side, and that weapon was failure. <laughs> it was really easy to stay anonymous when I could barely get published. Uh, you know, I wrote dozens of stories that never saw the light of day. I wrote three novels that I was never able to sell including one that I spent three years on and was turned down by everyone in New York, everyone in London, for an extra kick in the pants that was turned down in Canada. But in retrospect, I look at that as the pen name having done its job, you know, because I was scared that if I wrote as Joseph King, you know, when I turned in a novel and it wasn't that good, some publisher might decide to publish it anyway because they saw a quick buck in the last name. That would have got me a quick buck, but readers are tough to fool. They might buy your book because you're related to someone famous, you know, one time. But if the book sucks, they won't buy the second one. And I wanted to have a long career. I was selfish that way. So I went and tried to sell stuff as Joe Hill and saw a lot of rejections. But I think that that was a case of the pen name doing its job, um, giving me a chance to make my failures in private, which is where your failures belong. You mentioned that you spent three years on this Epic yeah. fantasy novel that never got published. Yeah, and do you think, will we ever see that in any form, or will you ever go back to epic fantasy, do you think? Well, I might go back to epic fantasy sometime. I, you know, if I had the right idea, 
you know, I'll write anything. The only thing that I won't write, I, I get asked a lot of times too if I'll ever write something that's completely mainstream, uh, that has no element of fantasy or science fiction or horror in it. And I would if I had the right idea, you know, if I had an idea I was really excited about. The one thing that I won't abandon is I won't abandon suspense. Because I believe passionately in suspense as the engine that keeps the reader turning pages. The reader has to want to know what's going to happen next. Uh, you can't just impose on their time and expect them to be interested in something just because you're interested in it. You have to pull them in with the hooks of suspense and then keep them on the line. And, and so for that reason, I wouldn't write a story about a retired editor living in Connecticut and dealing with his wife leaving him and, um, you know, his children experimenting with drugs and his existential crisis or whatever. That don't do it for me because I don't see why why a reader would necessarily think, wow, I have to find out what's going to happen hmm. to this. You know, so on that element, you know, I would write, I would totally write something with swords and wizards and dragons and, and uh, you know, um, elves darting out of the the forest and stuff, I guess. But that particular one is a total loss I'm, I'm getting. Yeah, well, the thing is, is, the thing is, is the most interesting concepts in the fear tree found their way into other stories. Mm. The underlying concept of the fear tree later became the underlying concept of an incomplete novel called The Surrealist Glass, which I started to write as the follow-up to Heart-Shaped Box, but it, I didn't finish it because it was a terrible novel. That morphed into Horns, and Horns was my third attempt to make an, the underlying idea work, which was basically the underlying idea was, what if you had a very limited psychic power? Uh, what if you could look into someone's head and see uh, their their darkest secrets? Um, not the good stuff, um, not their happy memories, but just what if you would you could just open them and read them for what they hate and what they've done that they're ashamed of? What if you knew the things about us about about other people that the devil knows about us? And so that became the underlying the underlying concept of horns. And in horns, I, I was finally able to play that idea out in a way that seemed dramatically satisfying. Well, it's it's funny when you mentioned the editor, that your hypothetical story about an editor, it just made me think of the first story of yours I read, which was Best New Horror. Yeah. Which is <laughs> about a, a, a sort of a jaded horror editor. Who, who has had the divorce and, and has the troubled relationship with his <laughs> Well, there's a bit more to it than that. but uh... Right. Well, the thing is, is the, this editor has published for years and years a book of stories called Best New Horror. Uh, he's kind of a John Joseph Adams figure in a way. <laughs> he's published these collections, a yearly roundup of the best horror fiction. And he's gone from being very passionate about the genre to being kind of burned out. But then he discovers this short story called Button Boy, a love story, that's really upsetting, a really terrifying and upsetting piece of work written by an unknown. And he becomes fascinated with this writer and tries to track him down to acquire the short story for his collection. And uh, that turns out to be very difficult and challenging. And there are clues that the reader is picking up on that maybe this writer is not someone you would actually want to find. But the editor is so uh, lost in his obsession that he's oblivious to it. It's a bit of a meta story. It's a horror story that's also a commentary on horror fiction. Well, and part of the backstory is that a professor had 
published this horror story, the Button Boy story, in his college literary magazine mm -hmm. and gotten a lot of blowback on it from the uh, alumni. And right. so he's hoping that if this editor anthologizes the story, it'll vindicate him in That's a way. Right. Yeah. And I, I was just fascinated by just all the ways the story explores how people see the horror field and their mixed feelings toward it, both the editor and you know, the society, et cetera. Well, it was also written at a time when I was very angry about the state of horror fiction. And, and horror fiction at the moment is in great shape. But there was a period in the early double O's and the late 90s when horror kind of fell into an infatuation with torture porn. Uh, the Saw franchise became very big. Uh, there was a hit with Hostel. And I find most of that stuff kind of yucky. I don't really dig it. You know, that's not really my thing. I don't think it's really all that effective. You know, horror is an emotion very closely connected to empathy. Horror doesn't work until you have characters you love and feel emotionally invested in. And then you see them suffer the worst. And, you know, you're flinching from it, but you want with all your heart to see them survive and get out. You know, and I think whether you're looking at the slasher films of the 80s or the torture porn that came along later, you do see that sometimes horror fails when it brings on characters that are just ten pins for the bad guy to knock down. You have, you know, in the slasher films from the 80s, you have the jock, the slut, you know, the geek girl, uh, the stoner, and it, these characters are not allowed to be fully formed. Um, they're really just one-dimensional, one-note characters, and you, it's impossible to feel much of anything for them. And you wind up rooting for Freddy Krueger because he has more personality. And so when he wipes them out, it becomes funny. I mean, do you think that... You say that horror is in great shape. Do you think anything has, has changed in terms of that setup, in terms of if a professor were to publish a horror story in a literary magazine, that it would still get that sort of... Uh, Hostile well, reaction. Well, I think it might receive that reaction if, if the story happens to be as thoroughly misogynistic as Button Boy is, um, and that the editor would probably be right to get a little grief about it. You know, freedom of speech is not freedom from responsibility, and if you uh, pledge yourself to really odious ideas, you can expect to get some blowback on it. I think, though, that when you look at horror cinema, or fantasy cinema, or science fiction, when you look at what's happening in um, fiction and in publishing in comics um we're seeing some great stuff right now you know mama was a great film with terrific leads and great scares and you know a great sense of atmosphere warm bodies was very funny and you know a, a great lead female character and you know there's just been a whole run of really intelligent genre filmmaking and genre writing the era of Del Toro and Joss Whedon, um, you know, with Cabin in the Woods and uh, the era of, you know, John Lethem and Michael Chabon has been very good for people who love genre fiction. Okay, wait, I want to go back to Button Boy for a second. So, <laughs> so wait, yeah. you see, because now I'm going to have to go back and reread that story. But so you see the Button Boy as a like nasty story that shouldn't have been published and shouldn't have, shouldn't be anthologized? No, I think it's torture porn, you know, to a degree. And I think that the editor, the editor of the Best New Horror Collection, is in a mood to be angry with women because of his divorce. That he is blind to the underlying red flags in that story. It may be, there may be some elements of, um, 
you know, there may be some nice artistic flourishes in that story. There may be some interesting concepts in that story. But ultimately, it's also a story about, about female degradation. And it's a little bit skeevy. And certainly very, very upsetting. And you're not necessarily inclined to root for the female lead, but to sort of enjoy seeing these, seeing her life melt in her own hands. And he's, it, while it may be genuinely scary in some ways, um, and may have some clever artistic flourishes, uh, the editor, the lead editor in the story, who is an intelligent and decent man, is nevertheless not in a great place mentally as far as his relationship with the opposite sex goes. And that's why he kind of falls into this trap. His belief the story is a masterpiece says more about him than it does about the story, which I should note we never actually get. We only get secondhand. Uh-huh. You know, we get a, a summary of the story from his point of view. So our whole impression of that document uh, is very colored by the perspective we're getting. Uh-huh. Okay, well, where would you draw that line, though? Because, I mean, there's certainly female degradation in Nosferatu, right? To a degree, but I think there's also male degradation in Nosferatu and, and horrifying things happening. Horrifying things happen to men, women, and children. Maybe <laughs> maybe even an an, maybe even animals. <laughs> not sure. Yeah, and, and animals in Nosferatu. It is the nature of the good guys to face terrible pressures and uh, violence and frightening situations. You know, the question is, how are those characters created? Is Vic a cardboard cutout of a woman and we're supposed to enjoy the things she has to endure? Or do we fall in love with her and care about her and feel emotionally invested in her? And we don't, we want to see her fight through where we're on her side, not the bad guy's side. The big warning sign is, are you being asked to enjoy what the bad guy does? Because if you are, I I don't know. I don't know exactly how I feel about that story. I mean, there can be ghoulish black humor in some of what Charlie Manx does to say Hicks in the hospital. You know, um, there is occasionally room for, you know, in fiction for the just desserts moment where an awful person receives an awful cosmic punishment, which we wouldn't really want to see in real life. But in the safe playground of fiction is okay. You know, I'm thinking of like, uh, you know, the James Bond film where one of the bad guys first falls off a crane and drops 120 feet. And obviously every bone in his body would be shattered, but they kept him alive to scream when the crane dropped on him. So you actually get to see him die twice. And within the world of the story, it's kind of funny in a Three Stooges sort of way. And that's okay. There's room for that. Well, like I heard you... In an interview, I heard you say something that really struck me that I'd never heard before, which is that you were saying that what makes Texas Chainsaw Massacre so scary is not that it's about a madman, but that it <laughs> makes you feel like it was directed by a madman. Yeah, I think that that's, I can't remember who said that. I think maybe, um, maybe it was Sam Raimi who said that about Toby Hooper, that he was saying the brilliance of Texas Chainsaw Massacre is, you know, is in persuading you not that it's a movie about a psychopath, but that it's a movie directed by a psychopath. (laughs) And I do think that that's also something in a way that's not necessarily, that's not necessarily a bug. That might be a feature. That might be something to strive for. I want the readers to feel like anything could happen, that they're not just on a roller coaster, but that they're on a roller coaster in the dark. Um, And they don't know which way they're about to be snapped or hung upside down or thrown. You know, that's moving the conversation in a different direction. That's about genre expectations. 
you know, another way that genre stories can fail is something tragic happens, someone dies, and the people who care about him begin to cry. I mean, that's fair enough. That's a, that's a common reaction. But it's not always that interesting. And if that's always, if you always go for the expected emotional response, um, you know, you wind up with characters who are, that are kind of trite and not interesting. And, you know, the truth is when you get awful news, lots of people don't cry. Sometimes people just go numb or they laugh because it seems so unbelievable to them. And it can take a while to process your emotions. And so with, in my stories, I'm always kind of, I'm trying to find an emotional response that feels true to that character, but maybe isn't what you would expect. And I also think that that's true of plot developments. Uh, you know, I never want to zig if that's what the reader is expecting. I'd rather zag. This sort of goes back to something Joss Whedon talked about where he says, the storyteller's job is to figure out what the reader wants the most and then never give it to them. Well, but I, I guess how the um, the Toby Hooper quote connects to the best new horror thing in my mind is that I, I sort of I sort of have this conflict because I don't like torture porn kind of stuff. Like I don't right. like horror stories where the the victims are tied to a chair at all. Right. Um, but as a writer, I feel like that if the reader feels like that if they know that I don't like that and they know the story is not going to go in that direction. I don't like that either, because then it feels like it feels too safe. Right. No, you don't want the reader to ever feel safe. You don't want the audience to ever feel safe. That's not healthy for them. They're there. They're there to feel unsafe. That's why they bought their ticket. Yeah. So, but I mean, I just, I, I I just, I think that um, you're supposed to feel empathy and understanding for the editor of this series, who is a flawed guy and he has a lot of anger issues and he's going through a tough time in his life but he's not basically a bad person you know and you could see from his memories of childhood falling in love with the fiction of jack finney and ray bradbury and going to black and white horror films you know you can see that his love in in many ways is very pure and understandable you know his love of sort of like you know vincent price style entertainment and everything He's just a guy like so much of us, you know, like so many people who's fallen off track a little bit. And he makes this speech at a horror convention about how horror fiction is about caring. Horror fiction, what works, is about feeling attached to people. And, you know, you, you have a character who's got to face, you know, something monstrous. And you feel invested in them and you want them to survive that. So... The story is supposed to, it's, it's kind of a manifesto. It's supposed to illustrate the principles that this guy is talking about. And at the same time, there's a story within a story, and that's Button Boy. And Button Boy somewhat subverts and perverts, you know, my idea about what makes horror work. All right, well, I definitely have to go back and reread that story now. Yeah, maybe I do. Maybe I'm also, <laughs> I may have the thing completely wrong. I don't know. It's been a while since I read it. Maybe Button Boy is an awesome story. <laughs> We mentioned your graphic novel series, Lock and Key, earlier. Um, yeah. And uh, you want to just tell us what that's about uh, briefly, just for readers who, for listeners who don't know what that is? Yeah, I started Lock and Key right around the time Heart Shaped Box came out, and it's finishing up this year. So me and my collaborator, Gabriel Rodriguez, have been working on it for about five years. And, uh, and actually, Gabe did illustrations for Nosferatu as well. Me and Gabe are best friends, and... Uh, you know, have a very close working relationship. And, but in any event, Lock and Key is a comic about a New England mansion called Key House that's filled with impossible keys. And each key unlocks a different door. 
and activates a different power or possibility. And so there's one key, for example, that uh, unlocks the gender door. And if you walk through this door and you're a boy, you turn into a girl. If you're a girl, you turn into a boy. Uh, there's another key called the ghost key. And if you walk, if you unlock that door and you walk through the ghost door, your body falls dead, but your spirit can roam free. And when your spirit passes back through the door, it rejoins your body. And there's dozens of these keys. And there's one key that no one should ever use, which is called the Omega key, and opens a door in a cave called the Black Door. And that's basically, you know, the setting and plot of the story. You have a family that has inherited this house and, uh, and three kids. Um, who find themselves wrestling with the possibility of the keys and also fighting off this fiendish creature named Dodge that wants that key, the Omega key. Uh, so in the first collection, I noticed you, uh, there was a boat named uh, after the author Kelly Link. Yeah. Um, you're a Kelly, <laughs> big Kelly Link fan, or what, what was the story behind that reference? Yeah, I love Kelly Link. I love Kelly's fiction. And you, you can see a lot of Kelly's influence in my book of stories, 20th Century Ghost. The last story, My Father's Mask, that was my outright attempt to see if I couldn't write a Kelly Link story. She's better than almost anyone at recreating what dreams feel like in her fiction. I have this thing that I've done over the course of my career. Every once in a while, I've fallen in love with a story. Instead of reading it once, I'll read it three times. I read it once for pleasure, a second time to familiarize myself with all the elements, and then a third time to re reverse engineer it. And the third time, I usually have a highlighter and a pencil in my hand. And I've done that a few times. The first time I did it was with a short story by Bernard Malamud called The Jew Bird. And as a result of examining that story, I sort of had my first kind of creative breakthroughs, uh, especially with a short story called Pop Art, which is very similar to The Jew Bird. Um, the two make an interesting pair. A couple of years later, I read a story called The Specialist Hat by Kelly Link, and I did the same thing. I, I picked it apart and did a kind of anatomy on it. I haven't done it so much with novels, although recently I've done it with uh, The Thousand Autumns of Jacob de Zoot by David Mitchell, um, which is, I think, probably the novel that's most impressed me in the last decade. Uh, so, you know, you mentioned you're wrapping up, you're in the process of wrapping up Lock and Key, and, and you mentioned uh, the Wraith comic that you're, you're working on. Um, yeah. What other sorts of graphic projects uh, do you have planned for the future? Gabe and I just got approved for doing a uh, a cape title by one of those big two comic book companies. Um, beyond that, I'm not allowed to say because it won't happen for a while, so it doesn't mm -hmm. make sense to talk about it yet. Because Gabe still has two and a half issues of Lock and Key left to draw, and both of those two issues are 32-page issues. So he actually has what it's what's more like almost four issues left to draw. And I have another sort of secret IDW project uh, that I'll be doing late, late in the year. I have a new novel going, and I've got it about two-thirds written. I would probably finish it next month if I wasn't going to be on the book tour for Nosferatu. Um, and so that's kind of my primary focus, is getting that next book written. Is there anything you can tell us about that? Um, the title is The Fireman. Besides that, I can't, uh, I can't say anything else. Okay, so you know, years ago, John and I went to a horror film festival. Yeah. And we saw short film adaptations of your stories, Pop Art and Abraham's Boys. Oh, very cool. Uh, which are both really good. I was just wondering, just curious, what's the story behind those and what do you think of them? Yeah, it would be, it would be a shame if I didn't mention that Pop Art, uh, which was filmed a couple of years ago, is now available in the iTunes store. Uh, so, and it's the first time people have been able to get it, you know, just pay for it and buy it. Uh, Pop Art was something that came about 
before, actually before Heart Shape Box was published, I had had a small press edition of my first book, of, you know, 20th Century Ghost, my first book, my first book of stories, published in England. And one copy of the book found its way into the hands of a woman named Amanda Boyle. And uh, she read it and was deeply, deeply, deeply into pop art, really responded to it. She wrote me the world's nicest letter and said, I want to do this as a short film. And I said, go for it. So she uh, she got some work from the Henson Puppeteers to create art. And she did uh, an 11-minute short. It came out really well. It's a little bit weird because my story is very American. And in uh, uh, her short film, you have kids playing cricket. I guess we should maybe say that the story, the first line is... When I was in sixth grade, I had a friend who was inflatable or something like that. Yeah, yeah, I forgot to mention that the plot of pop art is very straightforward. It's about the friendship between a juvenile delinquent and Arthur Roth, an inflatable boy. Arthur is made of plastic and filled with air, and he weighs about six ounces. And if he sat in a sharpened pencil or a pair of scissors, it would kill him. Um, but otherwise, Art tries to be a fairly normal kid. You know, he like, loves astronomy, and he's a bookworm, and uh, the two of them grow close. And so this film, the short film, is about 11 minutes, and it came out really well. And, uh, and I think it's great now people have a chance to get it. And Abraham's Boys was another short story in that book. And that's the story of Abraham Van Helsing and his unpleasant relationship with his two sons. That was directed by a film school grad in California. Um, I feel horrid. I'm blanking on her name, but she did it. It, it, it's, terrific looking piece of work i mean it looks like an episode of tales from the dark side very has a very kind of spielberg look to it and uh, that's never been commercially released i think it's played a few festivals so what other works of yours can we expect to see adapted to film or television in the in the future well the two things the two things that that you know are sort of in the works one the, the thing that i'm really excited about and you hope it will come out well my second novel, Horns, is the story of a young guy who goes on a drunken bender and wakes up the next morning uh, with a pair of horns growing out of his head. And he discovers he's inherited all the powers of the devil. And that's been adapted into a movie starring Daniel Radcliffe and directed by Alexandra Aja, who did High Tension. Um, they've got the film edited into Rough Cut. And uh, that will be scheduled for release either at the very end of this year or the beginning of next one. I have not seen it yet, but the footage that I have seen was very is very powerful. I mean, the other thing is, is you know, there are still ongoing talks about the possibility of Lock and Key being done as a series of films. That it's too early to say exactly what's going to happen there. Lock and Key was adapted as a TV series for Fox. And Mark Romanek filmed the pilot episode, um, working from a script by Josh Friedman, who was the showrunner and lead writer for the Sarah Connor Chronicles, Terminator. And I thought the pilot was great. Uh, you know, Fox passed over it. Um, they went, they decided to, to stick with Alcatraz and Terra Nova. Um, <laughs> uh, well, you, you some, said it was... It's like your own Terra Nova joke there. Um, <laughs> But maybe maybe they made maybe they made the right choice for them. I don't know. I mean, the complaint that I heard about it was that it was too dark. And I think given the success of American Horror Story and Dexter and uh that Fox is going with this one with Kevin Bacon called The Messenger that's a serial killer show and now Hannibal has a series and Bates Motel has a series, I would say that the idea that Lock and Key was too dark for television is 
probably a bit of a dodge. But it didn't work out, you know, it, it's probably harder to get a successful TV show off the ground than anything else in entertainment. It's a little bit like entertainment musical chairs. You know, all these pilots get produced. A network like Fox may have six new pilots and only two slots to put them in. You know, and so getting a chair is as much luck as anything else. Well, and you know, Fox only has so much room. They have to, they have a certain quota of Gordon Ramsay shows that have to be on the air at any given time. So. Yeah, that's right. I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't diss Fox too hard for it. I loved that pilot and I'm really sorry that it, because of, for largely for budgetary reasons, it couldn't get picked up on cable. But you know, we'll see what happens. Uh, you know, it may be that Lock and Key would play better as a series of movies. You know, that it's, it requires a different scale. Um, we'll see. I saw that you're going to be guest of honor at this year's World Fantasy Convention in Brighton. Yeah, that's um, yeah. So, do you attend a lot of conventions, and uh, have have you done the guest of honor thing uh, pretty often? Or I've never been a guest of honor anywhere. I think that well, I think that I was. I think I was a guest of dishonor at the World Horror Convention a couple of years ago, <laughs> um, down in Austin, and that was a lot of fun. That was great. You know, I've done uh, the comic conventions and the fantasy and horror conventions and they each have different pleasures and, and can be a good time. I'm looking forward to going out to the world fantasy convention. I'm also looking forward to WFC because uh, hopefully Richard Matheson will be there and I've never had a chance to meet him. And I, you know, I, I revere his work. So it would, that would be terrific. Yeah. You actually wrote a story called uh, throttle, right? That uh, is riffing on his story duel. Yeah. There was a book a few years ago. There was a book uh, called he is legend, which was an anthology of stories uh, based on the work of Richard Matheson, you know, sort of riffing off his ideas. And I actually collaborated with my dad on that. I had never collaborated with my dad on anything before um, that was published. And we wound up writing a story together that riffed on Richard Matheson's uh, classic, Duel. Uh, Duel is a short story about a man on the highways of California being relentlessly pursued by a faceless trucker. And it was later made into Steven Spielberg's. It was really Steven Spielberg's first film. It was a made-for-TV film and terrifically well-executed. And you could see a lot of the uh, gambits that Spielberg employed in Jaws are on display first in Duel. And uh, it's terrific work of suspense. When I was a little kid, my dad had a video disc player, not a DVD player. This was pre-DVD players. It was actually almost pre-videotape players. And the summer my dad brought home a video disc player, he also brought home three movies, uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Jaws, and Duel. And we watched those three films over and over and over again. And the whole experience of re-watching a film was amazing. Just this total life-changing wow moment. All, we all take it for granted now. But there was a time in my childhood when if you saw a film in the movie theaters, that was also probably the last time you ever saw it. And so the idea that you could re-watch a film was amazing. And when we were going for drives, we would play the duel game. I would make truck noises and pretend we were being chased. And we would try to figure out how we would throw off the faceless trucker. So in that way, writing this short story, Throttle, was kind of just an extension of the game we had been playing when I was a little kid. All right, cool. So that does it for our questions. Uh, is there anything okay. else that you want? Any other projects you want to mention, or any other topics you just wanted to throw out there? Um, no, not that I can think of. I mean, there's nothing, you know, 
I, I, I think that we've covered all the stuff that's coming out and, you know, and I'm reluctant to talk about stuff I'm working on because I don't want to mess any, I think it's, you know, you, you start to blab about the stuff you're working <laughs> on and it uses up all your energy to actually write it. Uh-huh. So it's, it's better to sort of play things close to the vest. You know, I'm hoping to do a little work in TV sometime in the next year and, and that might be fun. The only genre I haven't really had a chance to get into is the only form I haven't had a chance to get into is video games. So maybe that's next. You know, I've done short stories and, and comics and a little screenwriting. Maybe I need to get into video games. You know, I'll see. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how uh, open video games are to, you know, um, to a literary approach, but I do want to try it. All right, cool. So I think we're going to wrap things up there. So Joe Hill, thanks so much for joining us on Geek Skies of the Galaxy. I had a lot of fun. Thanks for talking to me. And that was our interview. So thanks so much to Joe Hill for joining us on the show. And as we mentioned, for our panel today, we'll be discussing recent horror movies. And we're joined by a special guest geek, Brittany Jaragatellis. After 10 years of rejection from the publishing industry, she posted her novel Life's a Witch on the online writing site Wattpad, where it received 19 million reads. That led to a book deal with Simon & Schuster, who will be publishing Life's a Witch in book form, along with a prequel, What the Spell, and a sequel, The Witch is Back. So, Brittany, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks so much for having me. And so uh, we're going to be talking about recent horror movies. And what we did is we solicited suggestions from our listeners on Facebook and Twitter. Incidentally, if you're not following us on Facebook and Twitter, you should go do that so you can suggest what we should watch in the future. From the feedback, I got the impression that Cabin in the Woods, the most people, more people mentioned that as their favorite, I think, recent horror movie than anything else. And that was my favorite. But neither John nor Brittany have that listed as their favorite movie. And that kind of surprised me a little bit because I thought Brittany was huge Joss Whedon fan. I am. I am a huge Joss Whedon fan. But I think that his movie was something that I have to watch many times over and more appreciate just because of the fact that it is Joss Whedon than necessarily, um, you know, my response to the film. Uh, I mean, you do have it listed as number three, so obviously you liked it. But... Yes, I did. Yeah, and I have it as number four, so I liked it too. Uh-huh. I guess we should say it's kind of hard to talk about Cabin in the Woods at all without, <laughs> without spoiling it. Yeah, it's something that it's something that was completely unexpected. Basically, like I, I had no idea what was going to happen in that movie, and I, and I didn't really know what to uh, what I was in for when I started either. Like I I don't remember watching the trailers. I mean, I don't watch trailers a lot, so um, but I mean, I remembered hearing about the movie and I knew it was a horror movie and it's called Cabin in the Woods, but then that doesn't really prepare you for what actually happens in that movie. Mm -hmm. It's pretty bizarre. Yeah. And I think that they kept things pretty tight lipped about what the movie was about. And I'm a, I'm a nerd and I love listening to DVD commentary and things like that and hearing how they made movies and special effects and, you know, why they made them. One of the things that Joss Whedon and Drew Goddard wanted to do is they wanted it, people to really come in with no impression of what it was going to be like. So I think that even when they were talking to the media beforehand, they wanted people to kind of keep what the movie was about, you know, quiet. I mean, one of my, I, I knew no, I, I knew absolutely nothing about it going in. And one of my friends had posted on Twitter that even the poster he thought was a bit of a spoiler. <laughs> and so I showed up 20 minutes early to the movie and they had a giant, you know, cardboard thing of the poster in the lobby. And so I'm just kind of pacing around trying to avert my eyes from it because I don't want to get any, uh, <laughs> any, I don't even want to glance at it. And actually looking at it now, I don't understand why it would be much of a spoiler at all. But 
It was sort of like the cabin, but it looks like it's sort of like transforming or something, right? Isn't that what the poster looks like? Yeah, it's like a yeah, Rubik's like, Cube, sort of. Yeah, Rubik's Cube, yeah. They also had alternative ones that had uh, several different rooms where it would show what was going on in each room. And if you've seen the movie, then you know what that kind of means. But they had that as a poster oh, as well. So maybe he was talking about one of the other ones then. Mm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have to say, and without spoiling anything, um, the ending of the movie is... It's a pretty bold way to end a movie, um, and not at all, again, not at all what I was expecting, uh, especially from something that Joss Whedon wrote. So it was uh, it was kind of refreshing in that way, and I think the, the way that movie sort of resolves is a large factor in what made me uh, like it as much as I did. Well, like I said, it's impossible to talk about this movie without spoilers, yeah. so if you care about spoilers, stop listening now or go watch the movie and come back, but let's, uh, <laughs> let's get into what the movie is actually about. Actually, uh, yeah, go watch it now. We'll wait. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, what I really appreciated about this movie, which is not true of a lot of horror movies, I feel, is that they actually had an idea. And the idea was, what if some kids in a stereotypical haunted house type movie realize that they're being observed secretly uh, from an underground complex and found their way down into the underground complex and quote unquote messed shit up? Yeah, it's actually very high concept. (laughs) I mean, it's basically like a reality show for the Elder Gods, uh, <laughs> you know, and or, you know, at the same time uh, uh, about a ritual to help save the end of the world or prevent uh-huh. the end of the world, you know. So it's it's very original. Yeah. And but and just at the be- like when you're first getting the scenes in the underground complex, I just had no idea what was going on. It's <laughs> so creepy and weird and perplexing. And then as you start to understand what's going on, you're just like, oh, wow, this is really, really interesting. I thought it was funny because if you did watch Buffy, which, um, you know, Joss was famous for making, it was a lot like the underground area. Yeah, Yeah, the initiative, right? Yeah, the initiative. It was very initiative-like. And you don't know, like, who these people are or what. And and you still have Joss's, um, you know, trademark comedy in there. I really liked Cabin in the Woods because there was so much going on. I mean, I thought it was very effective just as a horror movie it was funny, and as a commentary on horror, I thought it was mm-hmm. really effective, too. Yeah, it was definitely very self-aware, and one of the things that makes it more appealing to a wider audience, I think, is the fact that it is self-aware and, and that, it does, uh, it does, that it doesn't take itself entirely seriously. And, uh, you know, I, I, tried, I was trying to watch some of these with my wife, you know, so I, 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 I tried to schedule some of them for, like, during family time when, you know, we would watch stuff together. And uh, but she's not a very big horror movie fan at all. Like she'd actually specifically usually avoids them. And but she really enjoyed this one, I think, because largely because it was so like, you know, like I said, it was so self-aware and, and takes herself, uh, you know, sort of treats the material somewhat lightly. And I can imagine it uh, appealing to a lot of fans who a lot of people who aren't actually typically horror fans. The other thing about Cabin in the Woods that I latched onto is I felt like it was kind of paying homage to every style of horror film ever done. Mm-hmm. Like they were trying to put in there all the different kinds of monsters or, you know, types of movies. And there were just a lot of nods to different movies that uh, have been popular in the past. And then also, I think, especially what Joss and Drew grew up loving. Uh, well, yeah, just the scene where they're in the underground elevator and they're going past mm-hmm. all the chambers with the different kinds of monsters in it. That was just spectacularly effective, I thought. 
And I like that they actually did throw the merman in there at some point and discussed <laughs> it. Oh man! And the, so like uh, one of the one of the guys who's like a main character in the uh, in the underground facility who's who's orchestrating all of this. Uh, they, they take bets at some point and he bets on the merman and like nobody nobody else like really bets on the merman and he was really disappointed <laughs> that it didn't turn out to be merman but then like it shows up at some point when everything goes to shit and there's a you see the merman like feasting on someone and like it has a blowhole in the back of its neck and like blood just spurts out of its blowhole and it's like oh my god that's awesome that um, was one of their favorite things to shoot like um, <laughs> and they actually and this is something that i would highly recommend there was really really good dvd commentary on this but with that one specifically, I think they did it in one shot because it was like leftover blood that they had because I think that they did very, very little CGI. So in the scene towards the end where they're in basically in a room full of blood, that all that blood was actually dropped. Like that's stuff that they created. It wasn't just um, added in later. Yeah, and it was it was fun too to try to figure out the rules of what was happening because obviously there was some sort of ritual that was that they were trying to enact uh, to appease the elder gods or whatever, and and to to prevent the end of the world from happening. And it was just really interesting as you're watching. Once you figure that out, to see what the rules could possibly be, um, and what and keep them all in mind at the same time. And of course, there's they play with the with, again with the horror tropes, and and the virgin has to die last. And so there's all these. Basically, they seeded the house, uh, the cabin in the woods. They seeded it with. Uh, sort of the typical horror characters, so like, like the archetypal ca- uh, horror characters. So you have like you have the jock, and you have the 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 burned out, uh, you know, pot smoker, and and you have the girl who uh, is ostensibly the the virgin. And they sort of play with that at some point because like at the end, it's just the the burnout and the girl, and it's sort of like well maybe he's the virgin you know because he, he's kind of nerdy too and so he kind of like he could be and and at some point earlier in the movie she sort of indicates that she's not a virgin but um she doesn't flat out say it so i mean i, I thought that was interesting too because it's like it, it sort of added a lot of uncertainty to the end game of the movie uh when uh you don't really quite know how it's going to play out um and i mean since we're spoiling it anyway i mean the thing I was saying about how bold the movie, the end of the movie was, it's because, I mean, they actually let the end, the world end. I mean, the, it's like they fail to complete the ritual. And so the elder gods come back or whatever and, and destroy the world. So I thought that was really interesting because, I mean, most horror movies, like a lot of horror movies end on a dark note, but not quite that dark. And the hero's success is what dooms the world, right? That, yes. Yes. That you assume that the um, underground people have a sinister agenda and... Actually, they're trying to save the world, you know, so it was interesting in that way. Mm-hmm. Well, can we also talk about, I won't say who it is, but <laughs> we had a big, huge, like, star um, turnout at the end that nobody ever talked about. Like, I don't remember hearing about this person showing up in the movie at all. Oh, and right. so for me, that was like, I mean, it was almost like cheering at the screen. Like, are you kidding me? Like, especially because you have movies like, Scream, who kind of made it popular to have a really, really huge star in it that's killed off at the very beginning. And then also that goes back even to like Psycho. Psycho did it where they had a really big star where you are not expecting them to die so early on. But I thought that that was amazing that they would bring in a big star just at the very, very end. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought it was incredible and someone who is um, very relevant in horror films. Mm-hmm. So, so John, why is this only a seven for you? Well, let me just, I'll just say, wait, I'll say the one thing I wish they would did change. This is a really small thing, but right at the beginning, you see a 
hawk or something crash into an invisible wall. Mm -hmm. And then that sets up something that happens later in the story. And I kind of wish they had left that out because Mm. I knew what was going to happen then in the later thing. Whereas I think it would have been a huge, just gut-wrenching shock uh, when that later thing happened if if that clip hadn't been in there. That's the only change really that I would have made. But so why why is this only a seven for you? Maybe seven is a little low. I mean, maybe I could have gone up to eight on that or something, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, I couldn't really, I couldn't really say why I didn't uh, like it more. I mean, I I enjoyed it, um, but I didn't, uh, it didn't strike me as, as something that I'm going to want to revisit again and again. So that's probably why I rated it seven. See, Brittany, did you have any, uh, any negatives on this movie? Um, well, like I said, like, I think that when I first saw it, I was thinking, wow, this isn't what I expected because I wasn't expecting it to, I don't want to say poke fun of the horror genre, but it just wasn't what I was, what I was expecting. And I definitely, it was a movie where the more you watch it, I think the more appreciation you have for what they were doing. So it wasn't the typical horror film that I would ordinarily like. So I think that because of that, I put it not at the very, very top of my list. Okay, well, speaking of the top of your list, you actually, you mentioned Scream, and you actually have Scream 4 at the top of your Mm -hmm. list. And John didn't actually finish watching that one, I think. Mm -hmm. And I watched it, and I thought it was about as good as you could could expect Scream 4 to be. But (laughs) I wasn't sure the world needed a Scream 4. Um, (laughs) So Scream 4 really only made it to the top of my list because it was one of the Scream movies especially like the first and second. And I mean, even the third, I loved. It was the first movie that really made me terrified, like in a realistic, this could happen kind of way. And I was in high school when it came out. Um, and at the time after it came out, people started prank calling people and asking, do you like scary movies and everything? And it was also before, you know, we get with Cabin in the Woods, And then even with like Evil Dead, it was one of the first movies that I thought really blended humor and horror really well. And they also poked fun of the um, horror genre and um, all the rules that go on with it. So really Scream 4 wasn't my favorite of the Scream movies. And I thought it got um, a little preachy in the concept about basically reality TV becoming, creating your own celebrity but it really made it on there because I love the other movies. Mm. So, John, what do you did you did you like the other Scream movies, and you didn't like Four, or do you just not like that franchise really? Yeah, no, I, I was gonna say. I mean, to be fair, I, I love the first Scream movie. It's harder for me to remember the other ones. I I, I know I, I remembered liking the second one when I saw it. I I, I haven't revisited it. Um, I I don't remember the third one very well, but the first one was really good, and I really uh, have fond memories of that. And I I uh, I keep wanting to get my my wife to watch it, even though she's not a horror movie fan. But it's the sort of horror movie I think again, like with Cabin in the Woods, I think can appeal to non horror fans. But yeah, no, I mean like like what you were saying. I don't know that the world really needed needed a scream for, and I went into it with an open mind because I was like, oh well, scream. It'll be like I'll I'll be revisiting an old friend, and you know. And how bad could it be? And, and it's like, you know, it's not, it wasn't terrible. It's just that, like, I started watching it and it, like, felt completely pointless to me. Um, although it was interesting that it was the original team back to do Scream 4. It was, uh, Wes Craven directing and Kevin Williamson writing who, and they did the first Scream movie. So that sort of raised my expectations uh, right at the start when I saw that that was them. But 
Um, and actually, the beginning of it I found really uh, annoying too, because like you know, as she, as Brittany was saying, the what the screen movies had done previously was they have this star that's in the first 15 minutes of the movie or first 10 minutes of the movie, and then they get killed off by the killer. And then so they play with that at the beginning of this, but then they do it, they do it like five times. Like there's like a five time fake out thing where, um, and it's like, ah, that was a clever idea, but like, uh, it just, it annoyed me. But you're with Brittany on that the psychos are scarier than ghosts or whatever, right? I Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. Um, and actually it's something like I think about, you know, cause I edit Nightmare Magazine and I, I think about that sometimes that like, should I actually really encourage people to try that more? Because I don't see it very often in fiction. And when it comes to horror fiction, a lot of people tend to think just supernatural horror. But I mean, I'm definitely open to doing both, um, both types. And I mean, I'm more, I'm more forgiving of supernatural horror in prose fiction than I am on film. Cause like on film, it tends to annoy me more. Um, and I tend, and I tend to like those movies l- less. Well, I mean, Brittany mentioned that both, um, you know, Kevin in the Woods and Scream are both sort of humor or hybrid movies. And just looking at the top things on my list, I have Kevin in the Woods, Attack the Block, and John Dies at the End. These are all pe- things that people suggested to us as horror movies. I suspect some people are going to say that Attack the Block and John Dies at the End don't qualify as horror because they're too funny. Mm-hmm. Um, but so let's just talk about that. I guess, Brittany, what do you think about how funny is too funny before it doesn't qualify as horror anymore in your mind? I think it all comes down to like, are there moments that are really, really scary? Like, are there moments where you forget that there are funny things going on and then vice versa? Because like, even like with, we talked with Cabin in the Woods, Scream, Evil Dead, well, especially the remake, I would say. Movies like those, there are moments of comedy, but you clearly know that it's horror. At least I spent more time being scared while I was watching these movies than I did laughing at them. And I think that the use of comic relief in some of these films, it's literally used as that. It's going back and forth between the extremes of your emotions. So you're scared most of the time, but every once in a while, they'll give you a little bit of relief by giving you a comedic moment. And then they move back on with the story and then build back up to the horror part. But for me, I think it's mostly like, is there more horror than humor? And is, is humor used more as, as a relief type thing while you're watching the movie? Just to kind of heighten the fear again when it comes back up. I mean, do you agree with that, John? Because, I mean, you said, I think, that you, didn't, you don't consider Attack the Block horror, mm-hmm. right? But it is about monsters and the, they're killing off the main characters one at a time. And it comes down to the last couple of people have to kill the monsters. I mean, in its structure and content, it's mm-hmm. like 100% horror, right? It's just the tone is kind of... I guess so. Yeah. I mean, I haven't, I mean, admittedly, I hadn't seen it in a long time. Like I saw it when it first came out on video, I believe. Um, but, uh, weren't they aliens? Well, or they're like it? alien monsters. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. But I guess I was thinking of it more as just a science fiction movie and, um, you know, like a humorous science fiction movie rather than horror. But I mean, obviously science fiction can be horror as well. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's a good point. Uh, I, I, I certainly didn't find it scary. Um, although, as I've said, uh, I don't really generally find most horror movies scary, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a good point. I mean, it's, uh, I, I, I guess I could see it being included in, in a, in a discussion about these things. I, you know, I, I didn't even consider it as horror and, uh, and I mean, I, I enjoyed it as well. I, I, I gave that a six. Um, it's pretty far down on my list of, of, uh, favorites, but, uh, yeah, I mean it's it's a fun movie, but um, yeah, I was I was kind of disappointed in it. I mean, 
first of all, it's like it was sort of presented as if it was directed by Edgar Wright, but it's not. You know how they keep doing these things where uh, uh, Guillermo del Toro presents Mama, I believe. Uh, it's like that's one of those things where like uh, Guillermo del Toro presents, but he doesn't actually direct it or anything. It's like he didn't write it or direct it. He just really he didn't he didn't. Hmm. All right. No, I was looking that up the other day, too, because we were watching it and everyone was like, oh, this is what we would expect from him. And so I looked it up and, and he wasn't the writer. He wasn't the director. He was just a producer. It reminds me because uh, my favorite movie on the list was Quarantine, which came out in 2008. And um, I don't know if you guys remember seeing trailers for it, but there was a movie called Devil uh, that was yeah. uh, that was coming out in 2010. And the trailer really made it seem like it was directed by M. Night Shyamalan. Um, and I remember seeing the trailer for it in the theater and people just groaned when his name came on the screen, you know? Uh, but the interesting thing is that the director of Quarantine actually directed that. And I didn't realize that until now. And uh, it was only when I rewatched Quarantine for this that I like decided to look up that director and see what else he had done. And I saw that he did that. And it's like, oh, man, if I had known that he directed that, I would have definitely tried to uh, watch it for this panel. But um, it's, actually, I, it's, it's a half decent movie. I mean, it's 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 not mm -hmm. bad. Yeah, and obviously, I mean, it must be paranormal or something, since uh, I assume the devil's in it. But um, yeah, it's like there's five, I think, people trapped in an elevator, and they mm -hmm. start to suspect that one of them is the devil in, in disguise. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no. So, Quarantine, I, I think, is actually my favorite horror movie ever. Uh, you know, I was saying earlier how I don't typically get scared at horror movies, and this movie, like, actually, really, like, it's so intense. Like, I get so wrapped up in it, and. Uh, I find it actually a little bit scary. I mean, it's like, admittedly, I still only find it a little bit scary, but I mean, I can I can imagine most people will find it very scary. Well, um, we should say it's a, a found footage yeah. movie, zombie movie set in a, the, there's the uh, residents of an apartment complex are, are mm -hmm. sort of trapped and there's a zombie virus loose and the government, like soldiers are keeping them trapped in the building. And it's all, there's a reporter and her cameraman, I guess, and they're filming right. what's going on. I think that if you're talking about horror films, um, especially within the last five years, you really have to talk about the found footage or, um, you know, documentary style movies because they've become very, very popular. It's something that actually terrifies me. It mm -hmm. scares the crap out of me because I'm able to, well, and it depends on how the movies do it because a lot of the movies, it, I would say it kind of started with Blair Witch Project. Some of these movies, they choose complete unknowns for the cast. So I'm able for a little bit of time to suspend my belief that maybe this is really real. Like maybe this is, this is not just a bunch of actors that are in there, but I believe with quarantine, it had um, the actress from Dexter in yeah. it. Um, so I knew that that was Hollywood made and mm -hmm. um, things like that. But it's so scary because to me, it feels like it's real. Mm -hmm. So things like that, things like paranormal activity, those scare me to death, too. Yeah, but so quarantine, though, um, one of the things I think that really makes it so effective for me is that it's like, so it is found footage, but it's also just first person, like from the cameraman's point of view the whole time. And and like, obviously, found footage movies are always from the camera's point of view. But I mean, a lot of times they're very, they're like edited and, and sort of chopped together. And so this one, it's like it's almost just one shot throughout the whole thing i mean they sort of cut out a couple times like when he has to turn off the camera or something and like there's one scene where the reporter wants to watch what he just shot and so she's like no show it to me and, and so like obviously he has to cut the cut the camera to show it to her but uh one of the really clever things i i thought that they do with this movie is that 
you know, there's this big light on the camera because he's like, you know, he's like a professional cameraman, like on a reality show. And uh, so he has this big light on there. And then so at some point that becomes vital in the movie because the power gets cut and, you know, they're running around and they're using the camera to as a light. And so it kind of it's like it adds the the layer of reality. It's like, why are you still filming? It's like, well, because um, he needs the light and and there's no reason to not have the film on. And then at some point the the light breaks and then he turns on the night vision. Oh man! And like this, like the end of that movie is so like terrifying and amazing. Like there's this scene like right at the end, like the actual last scene of the movie. Um, there's this like monster in the in the attic. It's like a zombie monster thing, and and the cameraman and the reporter are up there, and then the cameraman gets uh, attacked and he's killed, and the camera falls on the ground, and and the woman has it. The reporter has it for a while and then the the thing attacks her and it gets knocked down and then she you, you see her you see her land in front of the camera and she's just like frozen and she's like looking and, and it's like pitch black in there so she can't see anything but she knows the camera sort of ahead of her so she starts crawling uh sort of towards it uh slowly and then the last scene of the movie is like her just getting pulled away from the camera and screaming and then it just cuts to black and it's like oh my god that just like gives me chills so much even just thinking about it i, I mean i just watched it but i mean it's like that's just the movie like is so huge, intense. It's kind of a huge spoiler, John. Yeah. Well, <laughs> sorry. Well, I mean, I mean it's, uh, the, it's like five years old, but. Well, also, I'll say also the the reason I'll forgive you for that spoiler is that yeah. it's on the cover of the box. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's also on all of the, it was on all of the um, previews for the movie. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And so now uh, we should also say that this is actually based on a Spanish film called REC or Rec as in you know record yeah. uh, because it's from the first person of the camera and it's really interesting because i really like rec too but it's it's interesting because they're almost exactly the same movie except that in rec it appears it, uh, if i recall correctly the it sort of turns out to be like a supernatural thing whereas in quarantine it's entirely scientifically based it's like it's obviously just a virus it's some like you know they they sort of think that it might be rabies or something or some sort of mutated version of rabies I mean, like, Britt, what do you think about, is there anything you dislike about the found footage format? Because I know a lot of people seem to have a big problem with that. Um, I think for me, well, first of all, I don't get motion sickness very easily. So I think that a lot of people complain about that. My husband himself, when we're at the movie theater and we're seeing something like that, it really does kind of make him sick. And who knows, maybe that's the way that that's something that adds to it. Like when it makes you feel kind of nauseous watching these horror films. Because I, I think I tend to like found footage better than a lot of other people seem to. But some of the problems I do have with it is that a lot of times it's hard for me to uh, ignore the artifice that the camera's always pointed in the right direction to catch whatever important thing is going on. Um, it just seems choreographed in a way. I heard a lot of people complain in Cloverfield that um, mm -hmm. they're like, this camera is like, this is like the Superman of cameras. Like no camera could actually last this long or have this night vision or I don't even, I'm not a camera mm -hmm. guy, so I don't know. but. I heard a lot of people saying that. And then also the acting in found footage movies oftentimes seems just worse to me. And I just suspect it's because, well, I suspect it's because A, because a lot of them are kind of more low budget and just have worse actors, but also because the found footage format requires you to do these really long takes where you can't save people's performances in editing the same way that you could in a you know, conventionally edited movie. Um, so like in VHS, right? Like just some of the acting in that just seemed just absolutely terrible to me in a way that I don't think it would have if they had been able to edit people's performances together a bit more. 
Well, let's let's talk about some of the other found footage movies uh, that we have on our list here. I mentioned VHS, um, The Bay. Actually, The Bay is interesting because you guys have it ranked fairly high, and I have it ranked fairly low. Um, yeah, I was surprised. You, you you didn't seem to like it very much. Yeah. Well, so let's first, uh, Brittany. What did you what did you like about The Bay? Well, I had The Bay actually down towards the bottom um, yeah. of my list. We just recently watched it, and I think that. For certain people, you're going to be scared by different things. So things like viruses and medical mysteries and things like that, they don't scare me very much. Watching The Bay, I felt that for me, for it to be a horror film, it should have been like when they got infected they should have then gone and tried to kill each other. So more like zombie-ish. So I didn't think it was a bad movie. It just wasn't very scary to me. Yeah, I, I agree with that, John. I mean, um, I thought I, what I really liked about it was I thought the scientific slash medical stuff felt very plausible and very, you know, well presented. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was just kind of bored watching the movie. Mm. And just the, the, the whole premise that the government tried to keep secret that this entire town died was completely implausible to me, you know, in the age of twitter and everything mm-hmm. like what's even the point like how could you even imagine trying to keep secrets like that it it, it just seems mm-hmm. superfluous to me you know i mean that's fair i mean i i uh i don't know apparently uh viruses do scare me because let's see t- uh, four of my top five movies were all viral based things hmm. well why don't you um, mention what those are yeah so i have quarantine and wreck as my top pick um quarantine being my preference between the two um i had pontypool uh rated second and i gave that an eight um, I have Re- Quarantine as a nine. Um, I have The Crazies next at a seven, and then Cabin in the Woods and The Bay um, after that. Um, also give them a seven rating. Yeah, no, The Bay, I don't know. I mean, I really, I I guess probably a large part of uh, what made me like it so much is that A, it's also a found footage thing, and B, it's a, a virus thing, which obviously uh, those are things that I like. Um, but I mean, um, I found it actually very scary. And uh, I mean, uh, you know, that's a fair point what you say about um, maybe the government uh, destroying this town and covering it up is a bit far-fetched there but um i don't know i I, it felt like something i could forgive in the context of the movie because i was really wrapped up in uh in the story otherwise okay so the bay is about you know people drink the water and they hatch monsters inside them the crazy is about people drink the water and they turn into psycho killers (laughs) um what what did you think of the crazies which is actually a, a remake of a of an older movie you know, I thought that it was an interesting concept, and actually I really liked Timothy Oliphant, who was in it, and I was expecting something really, really great, and then I felt like it got a little bit too much over the top, and almost like a mix between a viral virus movie with, um, like, the, you know, backwoods people that, almost like Deliverance. Mm-hmm. like people that are just kind of the mountain men that come out and try to kill people. I felt like it was a mixture of the two. I don't know. It it was like cheap blood and gore to me. But I, I mean, I liked Timothy Oliphant. I agree that toward the end, it turned more into like a slasher kind of movie, which I didn't like as much. But I really liked just particularly the beginning sections because the characters acted in an intelligent way, um, which you often is not the case in uh horror movies i mean like uh, i could go on a whole rant about um the strangers which is another one we just watched but uh what i really liked in the crazies for example the the main character is a small town sheriff 
and he somehow he starts getting indications that the water is making people turn violent. And he goes to the mayor and asks him if he can turn off the water. And the guy says, no, that's out of the question. And then the mayor, then the sheriff, Timothy Oliphant, he goes and turns it off anyway. And I was like, yeah, right on, dude. You know, I mean, take the situation to your <clears> hands. <throat> but the part I really, really loved is that then his deputy has a guy in a holding cell who's obviously turned into a zombie, right? He's like lying on the ground. And the, the deputy's like, oh, I better go into the cell and check on this guy, make sure he's okay. And you're like, no, dude, then the zombie's going to get you. You know, it's so obvious. And just as he's about to open the door, Timothy Oliphant kind of appears from out of frame and grabs him. He's like, what are you doing? <laughs> what are you thinking? And that's ex- it was just so perfect because that's exactly what the audience is thinking. You know, like, why? No, don't go in there. What are you, like an idiot? Yeah, I agree. And uh, I went into this with no expectations. I-, I knew it was a remake. And so I had sort of probably lower expectations than I would have otherwise. But I mean, I didn't really know much about it. Um, I knew it was based on a George Romero movie from like the 70s. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I agree with what you were just saying, Dave, about what was good about it, and uh, and and the rest of and the other stuff in it that uh, didn't really bother me. The the stuff that uh, Brittany was complaining about. I mean, um, I you know it, I sort of I'm grading it on a curve because it's a horror movie, and these are the sort of things I expect from a horror movie. But I thought it was all done pretty well, and it didn't go too over the top for me anyway. And I felt like I was really invested in the characters and I cared about them. And so um, when things are crazy things are happening and they're running for their lives and everything. I was, I was totally invested in it and, and I, and I really cared about the outcome. And so um, even though some things were, you know, like you say, a little bit over the top, I, I forgave that. Uh, one thing that I thought was interesting is that we're basically rooting for people who are breaking quarantine and possibly going to, <laughs> you know, spread this virus uh, throughout the rest of the world or something because they escaped. But so I thought I thought that was interesting. I mean, that happens a lot in these type of virus movies because um, that's where the peril is uh, for the story to drive the story is is in these characters who are p- potentially infected. And if they just sit down in, in their house and uh, <laughs> and, you know, let the government uh, kill them or whatever <laughs> to keep from spreading the virus. I mean, that's not a very entertaining movie. But. <laughs> Well, no, but I want to talk about sort of stupid characters, though, because that's a big sort of pet peeve of mine. But you saw The Strangers, right? Do you agree with my... Brittany, um, do you agree with my diagnosis that those were some kind of stupid characters in that movie? I actually really liked The Strangers, but I only liked it because, again, it's one of those situations that are terrifying to me where, you know, someone goes and they break into your house and there's really no reason behind it, but they're just trying to torture and kill I watched it a while ago, but I just remember it scared me to death. But I don't remember my reaction to, like, their reaction. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll say The Strangers, it's a, a, a couple, and the guy has just proposed to his girlfriend and been turned down. And so they're sort of awkward, and they're staying at a vacation home, kind of out in the middle of nowhere in the woods. And these masked people just start harassing them, and they destroy their cars so they can't leave, and they just break in and terrorize them. and. I, I was bothered by a lot of the stuff the main characters did, but it, it made me think, actually, one of the other movies we watched was um, The Citadel. And overall, I thought it was just kind of an average movie. But at one point, the main character like locks himself in the bathroom and blocks the door. And like half these movies, I was waiting for someone to do that. Like, no, just lock yourself in the bathroom. What are you thinking? You know? And so um, there should be a lot more locking yourself in the bathroom. that's what you know that's what the screen movies make fun of you know they're saying that the people are always running upstairs when they should be running out the door like i don't know if it's that we've grown accustomed to watching these movies and saying what are you doing (laughs) like (laughs) i would 
ever do this? You hear a noise in the back room. Why are you investigating? <laughs> like, um, you know that something bad's going to happen. But and I don't know if it's just like this is what we don't know what people would react like if they were put in the position. So maybe all um, logic goes out the window. But I, I mean, I think it's pretty across the board. People are always making bad decisions in horror films. If, even if in real life people would act in a really stupid way in that kind of situation, which I would totally believe, I just don't find it interesting in a movie. I would much rather watch a movie mm. about someone doing smart things because mm-hmm. it becomes less scary. When someone does something really stupid and then they die, it becomes less scary to me because I think to myself, well, I wouldn't do that stupid thing. So it's less scary to me. Whereas if they do something really smart and still die, then it's like, oh, shit, this is really creeping me out because there wasn't some easy escape, you know? Yeah. yeah speak, speaking of which, you know, um, I think it's much more interesting to also watch movies that have as their protagonists people that we actually want to root for, as opposed to the horror, the type of horror movie that has protagonists that you want something bad to happen to them, which is like kind of like what happens in VHS a little bit, um, at least in, certain, in some of the segments. And it's just like, like, I, I'm not interested in that in watching that kind of movie much at all. And I mean, there was another movie actually, uh, Sorry, not quite the same thing, but I mean, um, in Stakeland, like I, I gave that a six. I probably would have rated that higher, except that the villain was somebody that I, w- I could not like actually be interested in at all. And in that movie, it's like a post-apocalyptic vampire movie. And I thought the character, the lead characters were actually really good. There was like an older guy and his sort of young apprentice who are, you know, out killing vampires and stuff. And I thought they were both really well done and the char- and the act, both the acting and the writing. Uh, the villain though is like this religious cult guy. And it's like, at some point, he, like, threatens to rape this old, uh, this, like, gray-haired nun. And I'm like, you know, like, when you have your character who's, like, threatening to rape a nun, it's like, ugh, that's just, it's, like, I, I want to be able to enjoy the villain. I don't want to be completely repulsed by him. You know, it's like, uh, like, like, Darth Vader is, like, a very cool villain because it's, like, there's this mystique to him. And you enjoy watching him on screen, even though he's doing bad things. But, like, I can't enjoy watching somebody who wants to rape a nun. You know? Yeah, but that's part of like the enjoyment of when he finally is killed is that he's this horrible person. In plenty of horror movies, you have um, villains that are just like they don't have any redeeming qualities. And mm-hmm. I think that part of the and maybe I'm reaching because I, I hate trying to figure out what directors or writers were meaning by something they've done without them actually saying it. But with the religious fanatic then wanting to rape a nun, it, it was, it goes with the idea of, um, religion making us do things that people don't agree with or doesn't seem to match up with their, you know, what we would consider spiritual, um, mm-hmm. spiritual acts. And so I think that, I mean, that was an interesting thing to me. I actually, I, I enjoyed the movie. Um, I wouldn't, I don't think that it was groundbreaking in any way, but, but I, I really connected with the characters and I thought that it was, really well done in terms of the relationships of the people that they meet and things like that. Yeah, I, I agree that the like the acting and cinematography and stuff were surprisingly excellent for a low-budget post-apocalyptic vampire movie. Um, some of the stuff you're saying, John, about the raping the nun um, mm-hmm. gets back to some of the stuff Joe Hill was saying in our interview about mm-hmm. just like caring for the characters and what's sort of questionable judgment and stuff. And, 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 I'm, and as, as I said, I'm really conflicted on this because on the one hand, I find um, like rape often just totally turns me off. I've put down a lot of books because there was a rape scene. And I was just like, eh, I don't really want to read mm-hmm. this. Um, but then on the other hand, I don't. I also don't like the idea that 
um, movies, particularly horror movies, which are supposed to be about the darkest things, are completely sanitized of, mm-hmm. of rape, which is a reality, right? Especially in a post-apocalyptic setting, at some point it just becomes a plausibility issue that mm-hmm. there's no rape in when society is completely broken down. You know, these horrible people are running everything. Um, well, see, in in this particular movie, though, they already showed two of his followers like chasing after this nun and threatening to rape her, right? So they already have that element present. They, they, I don't, I didn't feel like they needed to have the main villain who we're we're going to see a lot of on the movie in the movie also just grossly threatened to rape this nun right in front of everybody. And then it's implied that he did rape her later um, off screen. At least it's off screen. The, um, one of the movies that I watched that I don't think either of you watched, I'd rather not name it, but there's like actually a surprisingly graphic rape scene in the movie. And, 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 and this was like a TV movie too. So I was very, I was kind of baffled that it was like that on screen. I mean, it didn't show any, it wasn't graphic in the terms of like sexually graphic, but I mean, it was like right on screen showing them raping this woman. And it was like, you know what? I'm just fucking sick of it. <laughs> you know, it's like there's enough degradation of women in the real world. I don't feel like we need to actually have this shit on screen that much. And uh, I mean, I'm I'm sick of it as a as a plot device. I'm really honestly close to like a nightmare saying like, I'm not interested in fucking rape anymore. You know what I mean? I mean, not that I ever was, but I mean, I'm not interested in seeing that shit because like, honestly, it turns me off every single time. Um, And I understand that people are trying to re- evoke uh that kind of reaction but it's just like it's not something i want to read about it's not something i want to watch at least part of my reaction to this kind of thing now being so vehement about it is largely due to the fact that you know i'm now married and i have this this woman that i love so very much and whenever we're watching these things when something like this happens on screen i see her just turn off completely from what like disconnect completely from what's happening and like and I, and you know, seeing her react to it, I mean, it makes me feel it even more that it's like just this is this is like it's just disgusting. Okay, well, I mean, Brittany, you have one of your most highly ranked movies is Last House on the Left. Uh, yeah, and that's that's big on it. It has a huge rape. It has a couple rape scenes. You know, I found actually it's been really interesting, like this topic in general, because a lot of my guy friends who are really really big horror fans are also, um, just like you, they will not watch any rape horror. Like, they will not watch anything that has to do with that. Myself, I think that there are things that happen, you know, in life that are real, you know, like, rape happens. It does. And and it's not that we should, like, watch it, you know, to the point where we're watching something where it's unneeded in the storyline or that we're saying it's okay. And it's the same with nudity. I think that there's a time when nudity is important to the storyline and other times that it's not. And in specifically on, in Last House on the Left, like if you've ever seen like the original and then also seen the remake, like I watched both of them. I, I actually really liked Last House on the Left. Last House on the Left is about, a you know, two girls who are basically get in a bad situation with these um, escaped convicts who kidnap them, rape them, and then try to kill them. And um, one of the girls survives. Well, in the remake, she survives. In the, in the original, she doesn't. But one of the girls survives. She goes back home. And then the convicts end up at her house, like at the house of her parents. And her parents realize you know, that they're the ones that have done this to her daughter and they just go crazy and they like massacre them. 
But um, the, the convicts don't know that they've gone to the house of the girl that they attacked. They do eventually. I mean, eventually they realize that's who it is, but they don't know. They don't go there specifically with the intention of, oh, now we're just going to twist the knife a little. But the interesting thing about this movie is you're you're taking a look at can normal people be driven to the brink of murder and um, like a massacre, basically. And what will it take to get someone to that level where that is their reaction, where they're so engulfed in grief and anger and um, these reactions that they would be willing to do something that is like unthinkable. And um, so in that instance, the, the rape scenes that they do, the, the murder, the just um, as horrific as they are, I think that if we didn't see that, if it wasn't in there, it wouldn't get us to the point where, where we're like, okay, I'm actually okay with this family murdering these convicts. And that, I mean, that's just me. I don't, it, it wasn't used in a gratuitous way where you are left feeling like this is for entertainment. I think that it was meant to make you feel disgusted about what they do so that you hate them even more and can understand the reaction of the parents when they find out that this has happened. Um, and it's specifically like in the original, and I can't remember if they did in the remake, but in the original, when after the, um, the two guys from prison have raped the girl, you see the just disgust on their faces that they've done that and, and that they've gotten nothing out of it. Like they know that they're horrible people and they've done this thing that they shouldn't have done. I mean, I I found I only watched the remake. I found it a very intense movie. I thought one thing it it, it did really well was that the teenage girl um, is a very strong, resourceful character, uh, and it really made me root for her. I think you could make a case either way about whether the on-screen rape was necessary or not. But the the thing I really felt dubious about was that early in the movie she's swimming, and then she kind of takes a shower and gets dressed, and it's a very sexualized scene sort of an ogling kind of scene and i really felt like that was of questionable judgment in, in a scene where this in a movie where this girl is going to be raped on screen to have this kind of like camera lingering over her short shorts and stuff like that um did you feel that way at all i honestly don't even remember that part i mean i'm not i don't want to say i'm i'm not easily offended um especially like when we talk about how females are um, are used in horror films. My own personal opinion is that more often than not, it's women that end up living. It's the they're the ones that end up defeating the bad guy. At least in the ones that I enjoy. Well, that that's interesting though. So, but you 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 feel generally that you're not unhappy with the treatment of women in horror movies. No, not really. And this is just my own personal opinion. And I've been watching horror films for a long time, but. No, I feel like for the most part, it's the women that end up living. So, um, in the Jason movies, in, um, in Friday the 13th, in, um, Halloween, especially, uh, a lot of these movies that I grew up watching, uh, and then Scream, it's always the woman that lives. I mean, it sort of came up in our interview with Joe Hill, this distinction between horror and torture porn kind of stuff. And I'm just curious, what do you guys have other things? that turn, just turn you off from movies. I mean, if a movie, for me, if a, if a movie is too 
like John was saying, like I don't want movies to be revolting. Like if, if I find a movie revolting, like it makes me want to throw up. That's a turnoff for me. And also, um, like I was saying, like if the characters are being tied to a chair or something and having their fingers cut off, things like that. I don't, I don't like it if the victims are tied up and being tortured. Mm. Um, so like, like Brittany, what, how do you feel about that? What did, what did you think about like what Joe Hill was saying about the period where there was like hostel and, um, saw and stuff like that were, were popular? Well, I really enjoyed saw just because I thought that it was something that hadn't really been done before. And to me, it was more like, um, the movie seven. Yeah. I've actually, I've said that the only research that the people who did saw obviously did was to watch seven, like 50 times. (laughs) Well, um, I thought that it was just really intriguing because, like, that's another movie that I really liked the commentary on because you have two guys who had a really small budget and they were like, okay, we want to make a movie. How can we make a movie with a small budget? And they were were like, okay, well, we can confine it to one room. Well, what story could we tell when it's confined to one room? So I thought Saw, the first one, was really interesting. I think after that, they just got into basically blood and gore and, and how can we make this bloodier and gorier than the next. But Hostel, I actually, I have a friend that was in Hostel 2, and that freaked me. It was just, I, I don't even know what it is about it that really, just like you, made me nauseous and terrified of traveling. I think that it comes down to the heart of that there could be people out there that could enjoy torture, that could enjoy killing someone. I'm the first to admit, I'm kind of fascinated. Um, to the point of obsessed with like serial killers just because it's a mentality and it's a lifestyle and a reaction that I don't understand. Like I don't understand what it takes for someone to, um, you know, like Ted Bundy to kill that many people and what it takes for someone who could possibly enjoy it or feel compelled to do it or like be okay with it and not even think anything, not feel anything. So. yeah, the really, really horrific w- with no story. Like w- at the end, you're you're getting no, um, you know, someone triumphing at the end. Uh, that's really bad for me. And also my biggest thing is I love fake violence. I'm all for it. I like the, the over-the-top blood and gore. Um, I'm fine with that. But when it starts bordering on, it makes me think that it's real. So um, I'm really bad with fight scenes. Like uh, there's a scene in Goodwill Hunting where they're fighting that it really scares me. It makes me feel nauseous. Um, and I don't know if it's that because I grew up in a school where there were lots of fights. I don't know what it is. But to me, like that is what I cannot handle. Maybe that's why Hostel bothered me so much because it seemed real. I think the Saw movies, like I only saw the first one and I remembered thinking it was interesting. I mean, I largely because it was, as Brittany was saying, it was something that we hadn't really seen before. I think that ultimately it probably did a lot more harm than good just because like it started all these imitators and uh, spawned all these sequels, which, you know, I, I haven't seen, but I gather that they're all pretty awful. Um, and, you know, they just keep upping the ante on the torture. And so it just gets more and more awful. Yeah, I'll actually say I actually quite enjoyed the first Saw movie, but Saw 2 was just too disgusting for me, and I, they kind of lost me with that one. Um, but like speaking of like stuff that kind of turns us off, why don't we mention some of, the, some of our least favorite movies? Hmm. So, uh, Brittany, what were some of your least favorite movies that you watched this week? Um, <laughs> Enter the Void. Hmm. Um, 
and I mean, I won't get into, I think that I love that movies and books and everything is subjective. So just because one person doesn't like it doesn't mean that others won't. This was not a movie that I enjoyed, but I also did not think that it was horror in any way. And then antiviral, I thought was a really, really intriguing idea. And I thought that the the lead character that they had, it had a really interesting look, which kept me watching the movie. I don't even know how else to explain it. But that also to me was not horror. And then um, VHS, I wasn't a huge fan of. I thought that it was low budget, even for a low budget documentary style movie. I, I mean, I liked the last one only because I thought that with the handprints on the walls and the ghosts coming out, I thought that that was really cool. But all the rest of it, I was like, I don't care about it. I don't really, I just didn't think it was very well done. You know, you were talking before about how your, Brittany, how your husband uh, gets motion sick with some of these found footage things. And like, you know, I don't usually, VHS really did. Like, I almost stopped watching it because it was like so shaky cam. And I was like, when is this going to stop and just like settle down? Because it was, they were trying for this, this kind of realism to the camera work. And it was like, oh, it's just like, it's really hard to watch. But before I watched it, Dave, uh, you actually said that you, you already watched it and you said you wish you knew that it was uh, that the stories were unconnected before you started watching it. And I was really glad you said that because I knew that it was an anthology movie going into it. But um, the way it's set up in the movie, it really does make it seem like like it's all going to come together at some point. And I was re- like, uh, I think they, they really needed to do more to distinguish the frame from the rest of the movie because when the frame sort of stops and the first movie started, like I didn't, I wasn't even really aware that we had shifted to that. And I was very confused. Um, And then as it progresses, it sort of becomes more clear what's happening that, you know, these guys are hired to go steal some videotape and they break into this old dude's house. um, And he appears to be dead watching, you know, having died watching some movies or something. And uh, so they're looking for the tapes. And so like, they're sort of putting some of the tapes in the VCR and, and the, in the in the different short films we see throughout the movie or, or what they see on these tapes. And it's usually these weird, violent things where people get killed, but there's also supernatural stuff happening in, in maybe all of them, or at least definitely at least in some of them. And so it was kind of an interesting idea, but yeah, just ultimately like the execution was really bad. And like, you know, like Brittany was saying, it's, yeah, it's very, it's low budget, even for low budget. Yeah, no, I'll just say, I mean, I, I thought the first short was pretty effective. That really creeped me out. Um, the next couple I didn't think were not convincing to me at all. And I wasn't scared at all anymore, but I, I kind of liked the last one because it was just kind of a funny concept. You know, these uh, guys show up to a haunted house thinking that they're going to a Halloween party and they just, I think mm-hmm. maybe they have the wrong address or something. And so they, they sort of bust in on this uh, coven ritual sacrifice kind of thing. And they think it's all just part of this Halloween party. Uh, so I, I found that amusing. But I'm kind of curious to get your guys' opinion because all these movies, none, I didn't really hate any of these movies. Like the ones I have toward the bottom of my list, like The Bay, The Signal, The Citadel, which were in there just kind of okay. But the one that just really annoyed me was Drag Me to Hell. And that's like 94% or something on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, I, I seem to be in the minority on this one, but I really couldn't stand that movie. I actually, I like liked it for what it was and I think that if you grew up with um you know watching like the evil dead and things like that I think it's its own little genre of horror where it's like almost slapstick horror and it was another one that blended over the top humor with over the top horror I guess I would say but um if you don't like those types of movies then of course you're you're not going to like drag me to hell I mean, the thing with, I mean, I knew it was Sam Raimi and I knew a lot of his movies are kind of goofy a lot, 
So I wasn't that surprised by that. But I guess, I mean, and like I said, a lot of my favorites here are humor horror hybrid. So I, I do like that kind of thing. But this movie, it just seemed like the humor wasn't funny. Like the humor detracted enough from the horror to make it not scary and the horror detracted enough from, and it just wasn't funny either. Um, but just the idea that you like, like the, the first scene is like a giant devil hand appears and drags someone down to hell. And it just, I, I felt like, okay, in the first scene, my intelligence is already being insulted beyond my <laughs> quotient. And then like this girl is doomed. She doesn't give a loan to a gypsy woman and. Nobody's more hostile to the banking industry right now than I am. But even that, <laughs> you know, to like you get cursed and haunted and dragged to hell for not giving someone a loan at a bank, which is your job. Just it didn't have any moral persuasive force to me at all. And the um, her, she has a boyfriend who's a skeptic and he's made to seem very uh, sort of clueless and uh, unsympathetic. And then the part I actually, you know, like I said, I didn't finish watching it. But I wasn't enjoying it at all. And then I, I got the feeling that this kitten was going to get killed. She was going to kill her kitten. And that was the point. I was just like, all right, this movie is not good enough to get away with killing a kitten, in my opinion. <laughs> uh, well, like I said, I think that those movies are, you have to like them to really watch them. But I thought there were humorous parts. Like her, when the witch lady goes away while she's in the car and then she slams her head into the window, like... Those are the kind of things that I could see myself doing. And so to me, that's humorous. And the gypsy lady, she was just creepy. That creeped me out. There was a lot of, um, uh, just like in um, Evil Dead, a, lo a lot of bodily fluids being thrown up on people and things like that. So if you don't like those kind of grotesque things you wouldn't like it either but i thought it was what it was and it was fine for what it was i guess i mentioned her boyfriend i mean john and i are both like very rationalist skeptical don't believe in any sort of supernatural stuff things so and when we love these kinds of movies but a lot of times it does really annoy us the way that skeptical characters are portrayed um i know that was an issue john with you right in insidious oh you yeah want to talk about that sure yeah um so, I mean, it's a, the story is about, like, this family. They move into a new house, and the their little boy has an accident in the attic, and then he's, like, in a coma or whatever, like, this mysterious coma. The doctors don't know what's going on, and so he's sort of brought home, and he's being cared for at home. And uh, as, as the movie progresses, this, I mean, there's a spoiler, but, I mean, it sucks, so it doesn't matter, but... You know, the the it becomes clear that the that the boy is actually haunted, not the house. And uh, and, the, and and a lot of that stuff is actually pretty creepy. I mean, it's all supernatural, but I mean, it's kind of cool. But then at some point, um, you know, they bring in these like uh, this like psychic and she has like these two like ghost hunter buddies that are like sort of they're like doing tests with equipment and stuff to determine the fucking ghost quotient of the house or whatever the fuck, you know, and it's just like. I was like, is this supposed to be funny? I don't even understand. It's just like the movie completely goes off the rails once those people show up, I think. I mean, unfortunately, because like you don't really get to find out what's happening with the supernatural aspect until they come. Um, but like those three characters, like I didn't like any of them, and including one of them, his name is one of their names is Specs, and he's just like a guy who's wearing glasses. And I'm like, what? You're not even trying. I mean, um, but uh, but like what Dave was saying, the husband is the skeptic and he's really being made to look, look like an idiot throughout most of the movie. And it's just like it's really infuriating when you're watching it because it's like, well, no, it makes perfect sense to not believe that any of this shit is happening. Of course, it is actually happening. So he is he does turn out to be wrong. But it's just like it's that's kind of frustrating from this from a rationalist point of view when you're watching this stuff. With you guys being kind of you said that you're both 
kind of on the side of a, being a skeptic. Do you find that that makes you guys dislike most um, either supernatural, ghost, um, haunted type movies? Particularly, like I would love to talk about Sinister. I thought that that was an incredible movie up until the very last minute. I think that if they had stopped it right before then, it would have been perfect. I'll just say, yeah, no, I, I really like Sinister. I thought it was extremely well done. I thought that Ethan Hawke's performance and his wife's performance were fantastic. I, I thought that the the moment, there's a moment where he's working on his computer and he has a picture of the villain that he sort of screen captured and it turns and looks at him for a second and then looks away. And that probably freaked me out more than anything I watched in any of these other movies. And I, I can't say I love Ghost. I, I, I like more like, I would rather it not be defined. Like one of these movies, I won't say which because it's kind of a spoiler, but it starts out and you're not sure what kind of monster it is. And then it turns out to be a ghost. When you find out it's a ghost, it's just a letdown to me. It, it, it um, demystifies it in a way almost. But my thing with skeptical characters is that I don't like it when the skeptical characters are made to seem unreasonable or obtuse, right? So I would rather in a supernatural movie that there just not be a skeptical character at all, or they be reasonable. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's fine as long as the supernatural stuff is sufficiently subtle that you, that the skeptic seems like a reasonable person, but it's when really obvious supernatural things are happening and the skeptic is just refusing to acknowledge what's plainly apparent. That's when I, I start to get really annoyed. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I like Sinister as well. Um, and, but to answer Brittany's question, I mean, like I, I like ghost stories fine. I mean, I, I publish lots of them in the magazine and, uh, you know, I enjoy reading them. Um, I don't mind supernatural stuff at all. Um, I think that does keep me from being scared from horror movies. And that's a large reason why I'm very rarely scared when I watch horror or when I read horror, because when I know that what I'm reading about is something that's obviously just completely from the imagination, like I don't feel like I can't be scared by that really. That definitely um, has an impact on watching something like The Exorcist or something like that, something that's like obviously Christian based um, horror. Um, like, I really have a hard time connecting with any of that stuff. And, um, you know, we didn't actually really watch anything that, I mean, at least I didn't watch anything that had any of that um, in it. But yeah, Sinister, I, I thought was really well done. Um, actually, I will say that the scene you're talking about, Dave, where the, where the villain looks at, uh, the, at the protagonist on his, from his computer, I actually kind of, I didn't like that scene. I didn't like that. Um, and, uh, I, I don't know. I, I think it was partially because, like, at that point in the movie, like, I felt like w I wasn't ready for that to, to be revealed yet. Like I didn't, I didn't want that to happen no, at I that could, point. I could see that, yeah. Um, and uh, and so that just sort of threw me out of the movie a little bit. But but it, I thought it was really well done. It was really creepy. You know, I agree. Ethan Hawke uh, did a very good job in the in the lead role. Um, you know, because he's like basically an investigative journalist. I mean, he's writing like these true crime books. And I, I felt I found that part of the plot like really interesting as he's trying to figure out what's happening. And you know, he finds these creepy um, home movies in the house that he's in. Cause like he, he just moved into the house of this murder victim where this family was murdered and he's like unraveling all of this history. Um, and I thought it was cool too, because for a while there, you don't really know for sure that it's going to be some sort of supernatural thing. And then it does turn out to be supernatural. Um, but that actually worked for me. And a lot of times that doesn't work for me when, 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 um, when it could go either way and it turns out to be supernatural, a lot of times it feels like a cheat or something. And this, it, it, it seemed to uh, fit pretty good. 
But uh, one thing I actually want to give it props for the movie, um, not not in any horror context, but it actually used computers and the internet in a realistic way. I, I was so surprised. It's a, it, you know, it's like he goes to Google. It actually is Google. It's not some made up search engine that nobody uses. Um, but then he searches for something, and he he it actually looks like a Google result. And then he goes to a website. It's like to repair uh super eight movies or whatever um and it's like oh wow i actually believe that that's a website that exists that he actually used his internet for research which i think is really important in something like this where there's a lot of weird strange unbelievable things happening if you have all of the tools that the characters are using used in a believable way that adds this layer that makes it more palatable it makes it easier to sort of suspend your disbelief but uh one thing what the thing i liked least about this movie actually was the title like sinister like, could you pick a more generic title? It's like you could call any horror movie Sinister. Uh, I was actually, I was a little surprised. Yeah, I was like, wow, Sinister, that's never been taken before. Actually, it was. You know how I know this? Because um, there's this website called Can I Stream It? And it's like a, just a useful service for finding um, what streaming services have a movie available. So, like, I don't have to check Amazon and iTunes and Netflix and everything. I can just go there and then it'll tell me which of those services have it. And it has a link and everything. So it's very handy, right? So I, I was using that. And I went to that and I typed in Sinister and uh, and it found it for me. And it's like, oh, Amazon Prime has it. And so I can, and I, I, I subscribe to that so I can watch it for free. And so I click through and then I'm watching like the first couple minutes of it. I'm like, why does this look so shitty? Like, it's like, I was like, this is like a recent movie and was pretty highly produced from what I know of it. And it's like, it just looked like something from the 80s or something. Um, and then I realized, oh, this is some other movie called Sinister, some like low budget uh, horror movie from the 80s. Um, but there, there was at least that one other movie called Sinister. And I did not watch it because it was old and it looked terrible. I think, I mean, part of the reason I like Sinister so much might just be that it was, I think it's the first of these I watched, at least one of the first two or three. And I definitely found that if you watch 15 to 18 horror movies in a couple of days, <laughs> in a week, there's a point of diminishing returns, you know, mm. where you get to a point where like, oh, God, not another jump scare, not another creepy huh. kid, you know, not another like yeah, the- per- person walking by the doorway. And it's like, I mm-hmm. can't deal with I can't take another one of these. Yeah, the jump scare is super annoying. I mean, one thing I want to ask you guys is because I watched all of these movies by myself in my house, like in the middle of the woods, in the middle of nowhere at night. <laughs> And they really creep me out. And I know that I don't know if you how many of these movies you guys watched alone or like if you have a preference for like alone versus, you know, with other people, because I think it's a lot scarier to watch it by yourself. But I know, Britt, you have these horror parties, right? Could you talk about that issue? Yeah, (laughs) Um, I actually it started out by me just throwing Friday the 13th parties because I really like Friday the 13th. I think it's fun and it was an excuse to get all my friends together and watch scary movies. But now it's kind of turned into every Friday I have friends come over and we watch scary movies. Um, with the Friday the 13th parties, we actually have scary themed food. So I've made like um, calzones that are in the shapes of severed hands. But um, I agree, like watching something alone is is really scary. Although I tend to not do the scary movies by myself at night. I'll watch them in the middle of the day by myself. And when I go to theaters, theaters scare me because I'm constantly worried that someone is going to get me from behind. <laughs> it was that way even before Scream came out where someone actually gets killed in the theater. But um, just I'm constantly knowing like what's around me and everything. But I think that it depends on who you're watching it with. If you're watching it with just one more person, I think that you can accurately get a good... Um, 
vibe of the movie watching. What I found is with a group of people, and I have a lot of actor friends and funny friends, they like to do commentary the entire time and joke around. So if it's something that I really want to watch, I'll either do it in a theater where I know it's they're less prone to be making comments the whole time or just me and someone else. Just because I like the experience of horror films. I like being scared. And and I don't want someone else to kind of taint my view of it. But sometimes it, it depends. Like theaters can get a little bit sketchy as well. Like I went and saw the woman in black in the theater and we had someone, and this has become like a running joke with um, my friends and I, but we had some people that were in the audience that were very vocal throughout the whole movie. And in the, if you've seen it, there's a part where the, the monkey starts clapping the cylinder, the, um, the together. And, um, at that exact moment, this woman in the back yelled out really loud, fuck that monkey. <laughs> it became like everybody started laughing. It was really funny. And so now, like, all my friends called the movie, fuck that monkey. See, Brittany, what, what, what would you, do you have any advice for throwing a horror? movie watching party like what movies and or like other stuff goes over the best well what i've actually done and i think that some of my friends who don't like horror films have come to have finally realized that for me watching horror films are more of an art than like let's just watch this slasher film like i genuinely like the genre and i enjoy listening to commentary and things like that. So with mine specifically, I would suggest because when you do get a group of people together who are all going to have different opinions, and if you're like me and you have funny friends, it turns into more like a, a mystery science theater experience. So my suggestion is do movies that you've seen before. And also a lot of my friends are not as big on the horror genre as I am. So we watch a lot of older movies. Um, so We'll watch like Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street and Halloween. And then we get into even things like Sleepaway Camp. Just all the older movies that we grew up watching that I've already seen and kind of decided how I feel about it. So I would say pick ones if you want people to kind of know what jump started your love of the horror genre. Pick some of those also, especially so that if they are commenting the entire time, you're not missing out on on it mm -hmm. all right so john uh the other high really highly ranked movie you have on your list is pontypool mm -hmm. uh, so why don't we talk about that uh, why'd you like pontypool so much yeah i'm glad you brought it up because i was actually going to say oh no we have to talk about pontypool <laughs> before we stop but um yeah this was a movie i'd never heard of i believe it's uh i believe it was a canadian film and so uh, probably didn't get much uh play here so this is a movie about a, a radio sort of host, uh, a radio show host, and he's uh, in this little small town in Canada. And as the movie sort of starts, um, they're starting to get these reports of this uh, riot down in town. And uh, like so many people are piling into this building that like the walls are like, you know, exploding from all the people. And then basically people are just going crazy. I mean, it's you can't really talk about what makes it really cool without spoiling it a little bit, but. Well, I mean, what the first hint that you get that what's actually happening is uh, because it's in Canada, you know, they speak French and, and English in Canada. They get this message in French and, and it's just played over the it sort of interrupts their radio broadcast as they're broadcasting live, which is obviously a pretty rare experience. And so 
it's really it was a really cool scene because they they don't know what it says and so someone in the studio does speak french and so she translates it and she's feeding it to the host and he's reading it as it comes across on his screen and um basically what the message is saying is that they believe that there's some sort of virus or whatever is but it's being spread by the english language and uh so it's like something about certain words so like don't say things like honey or um other terms of endearment stuff like that and it's like that thing whatever that thing is is triggered by that kind of speech and then the end of the message in french says do not translate this message and of course he's just read this whole thing um on the radio and i, I thought that was really cool and i i just love the idea and uh it's i think it's a pretty it's a, like it's a quiet movie for a lot of it and then like things start to get crazy but and it's largely just takes place in this radio studio I think it entirely it entirely takes place in the radio studio, right? I don't think there's a single shot. Yeah, no. Uh, he, well, uh, he's out. He he comes to the studio in his oh, car. Oh, in and the very a, first scene, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The very first scene is outside the studio, and they sort of go out. They at least look outside uh, at some point, but yeah, it's, I mean, essentially entirely in the radio studio. And I was gonna say this is another movie that has like a bad title because it's like Pontypool. Yeah. I mean, it's like doesn't doesn't tell you anything about it. I mean, at least it's at least it's a unique title as opposed to like Sinister, which. No, I started watching movie. another movie called Pontypool, and I was like, <laughs> oh, this isn't the right one. Oh, okay. Well, maybe not unique, but at least you know. No, rare. I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Oh, okay, gotcha. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but uh, actually, there's a line in the movie. Uh, they say uh, Sidney Breyer is alive, and and it's sort of repeated several times. Uh, Sidney Breyer is alive. And I just like, look, that would have made a much more interesting title. I mean, I'm not sure that it would tell you what the movie is about, but at least it's like, well, yeah, that sounds interesting. Yeah. And uh, it sounds like something different, which is what this movie is. Uh, well, actually, uh, go ahead. Go ahead and talk, David, and then I have something else to add after. But uh, well, go ahead and you... get Braden here. What, what did you yeah. think of Pontypool? Um, <laughs> <laughs> didn't I... like it too much, huh? Yeah, it wasn't really for me. I just felt like it was made by someone who want, wanted to make a point about, I don't know, it slightly felt anti-American because of not using the, or the English language was carrying this virus, but also just, it felt like it was made by someone who was like, we talk too much. And this might be not at all what they had intended, but it seemed like they were set on the idea that we talk too much and that it's somehow um, causing violence or, you know, people to go crazy. So we shouldn't talk as much. I, I if that's there, I, I, I missed it. Um, but yeah, I didn't, I didn't pick up on that at all as I was watching it. I just, uh, I found the uh, language spreading a virus thing a little impossible. <clears throat> I mean, that was my, that was really my only complaint with the movie is that I just had a hard time actually believing that. But aside from that, I thought it was really good. I really, I thought the main character did a great job acting. Uh, mm -hmm. He really, I mean, he really, seemed, I don't know who he is. He really seemed, I would totally believe that he's a radio host. I mean, he seemed, yeah. he really had a great uh, radio presence, which I unfortunately will never have. It was making me a <laughs> jealous. But uh, I don't know his name, but I've seen that actor and stuff before. Yeah, so uh, one thing that I thought was, uh, and one one reason that I maybe I like this mo movie more than I should have, I mean, like, I don't know, like, I, I really, I really liked it. But I mean, one thing that I, that, sort of probably made me like it more is it really made me think of the story I published in the living dead two called, um, we now pause for station identification by Gary Braunbeck. It's about a radio DJ who's, you know, it's after the zombie apocalypse and he's like at the radio station doing his like last broadcast. And it's like just this total, like just stream of consciousness thing as he's like sort of narrating the end of the world. Um, and it's a great story. 
And then there's a story in Wastelands called Speech Sounds by Octavia Butler. And that's a story where basically people lose the ability to communicate. Like they, they can't speak anymore. And also they can't write either. Like nobody can understand it. Um, and so like they sort of lost the ability to communicate with language. And Pontypool kind of felt to me like a combination of those two stories and in a really cool way. Um, and so like, you know, I have that, I have that additional baggage going into that that made me sort of maybe like it more because I was seeing, uh, these other two stories that I like sort of brought to life in this different context in the movie. If the movie actually does, is intending to have that subtext that Brittany was mentioning, I mean, that would certainly put me off of it a little bit. I mean, cause, uh, obviously, uh, that's not something I would be on board with, but I mean, um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure. I, I'd be curious to find out what the filmmakers were thinking if that was it, if that was a factor at all. Um, I mean, I've certainly encountered things like that before where you see a movie and then you get some hint that there was something actually, there was some message that was intended by it that didn't come through. Um, like actually Gattaca, um, has some, some scenes in the, uh, like Gattaca is a movie I totally, totally love, but there's some scenes in like the, in the extras, um, and including some deleted scenes that really cast a completely different light on the movie. And you're like, wait a minute. Like, you know, <laughs> and I, I would encourage you to never watch those for Gattaca, by the way. But, um, and maybe for Pontypool, I shouldn't actually research the, the, hmm. the filmmakers because I would prefer to like it, uh, for what I, what I perceived it to be rather than what maybe what they intended it to be. Well, like I said, I, I really hate it when, like, it, with poetry or art, uh, you get people sitting there saying, this is what they meant when they did this, when in reality, there's no proof that that's actually what the creators meant. So mm. that's just my personal, that's how I felt when I was watching it. Like, mm -hmm. it's just commentary on something that, you know, they feel. Um, it could be completely not that. And like I've said before, I think that movies and books and everything is really subjective. So something that hits someone else in a really big way, um, you know, more power to them. But that was just my vibe. Um, actually, speaking of The Living Dead 2, um, there was another story in The Living Dead 2 called Danger Word um, by Tananarive Du and Stephen Barnes. And uh, they actually wrote a novel expanding that, or they actually expanded that story into a novel. And now they're uh, um, they're actually doing a fundraiser to sort of kickstart it's not on kickstarter but they're basically trying to kickstart a, a short film based on that story uh um and novel uh the the movie is going to be called danger word which is what the what the story is called the novel's called something else which i don't remember but um they're actually doing a fundraiser for that right now and so um i mean that's one of my favorite stories in the living dead too um so uh you might want to check that out uh, i mean um it's it doesn't have like a good url that i can just read for you now but i um, mean if you just google um danger word film uh, i'm sure uh, that'll pull it up and or Tananarive Du and Stephen Barnes, but they're, you know, like I said, they're currently doing a fundraiser for it and uh, uh, they're going to make a short film out of it. And and they have actually a lot of Hollywood connections and stuff. So um, I would expect that they'll actually end up with something that, that'll be pretty cool. Um, so that that's a, a horror movie that uh, doesn't quite exist yet, but uh, maybe we'll be talking about it in a, in, in, in the next, uh, the next uh, horror roundup we do. All right, cool. So we should probably start wrapping this up. Uh, let's see, Brittany, we mentioned in the intro that you, you got your success with Wattpad. Do you just want to talk a little bit about what Wattpad is and would you recommend it for other aspiring writers? Sure. Um, well, basically my story is, you know, I went through many years of rejection and trying to get published in the traditional way and it wasn't working. And I got to a point where, um, you know, I had an agent for a while and he dropped me when he couldn't sell some of my books. And so I really had to reevaluate why I was writing. Like, Am I doing this just so that I'll get published and become, you know, famous? 
or am I doing it because I love to write and hopefully people will be able to read the stuff that I've written and enjoy it. So when I kind of reevaluated why I was doing it and came up with that was my actual goal, I had to kind of let go of my ego, which thought that there was only one way of having myself published. Around that time, I had heard about Wattpad, which is, um, it's W-A-T-T-P-A-D. And it's basically like a YouTube for writers. It's a place that people can go and post their, um, their writing. Um, it could be like anything from poetry to short stories to full-length novels. Some people are starting to do screenplays on there um, and things like that. And I was just kind of like, you know, I've, I have six books that are sitting on my desktop collecting dust and nobody's reading them. And if my goal is to get them in the hands of people to read them and hopefully like them, then I'm failing miserably. And so I decided to write something brand new, um, exclusive for Wattpad and um, started, I posted my first chapter January 1st of 2011. And from there on out, I was writing and posting at the same time, which for someone who's you know, written books, it's terrifying to post something that you know hasn't been edited to um, your standards. But I posted it on there and it, it started to become a success. And after six months, I had finished writing this book, uh, Life's a Witch, which was loosely based on the Salem Witch Trials, but set in modern day. And I had finished posting it and I had about six million reads of it. And then um, coming up on about a year there, I had about 18 to 19 million reads of it. And at that point, people were asking where they could purchase it. And I was like, you're getting it on here for free because Wattpad is a free um, content site. You get everything for free when you're on there. You post it for free. The focus is not to make money as a writer. It's to build up an audience and um, get some feedback on your work. So when somebody was like, you know, where can I buy it? I sat there and I was like, why am I not publishing this? Why am I not self-publishing it if there's a demand? And so that's what kind of pushed me to self-publish. And then about three weeks later, the publishing industry heard about my story and the following that I had on the site. And we ended up going into an auction between four publishing houses and then ultimately choosing to go with Simon & Schuster. So... It was pretty, um, it's a pretty cool story just because um, I think that we live in a really great time right now where we can kind of take matters into our, our own hands in terms of um, making our dreams come true. So whether that's, you know, people wanting to make music and being able to put it up on YouTube or um, selling it on iTunes themselves, things like that. We have so many different options available if you just kind of push forward. but. Wattpad was definitely instrumental in getting my name out there, um, helping to create this fan base that I now have, and then ultimately leading to, um, you know, signing with a major publisher. And I, I heard your book was just featured on an episode of Glee. Yeah, yeah, it was. Um, it was on an episode of Glee that was titled "Guilty Pleasures," and um, originally I had heard it was going to be on there as Tina's guilty pleasure and have some sort of arc in the show. But, you know, when things hit the cutting room floor, 
Um, it actually just ended up in there as, you know, Tina was carrying it in the hallways during the episode. But still, I think it could still be Tina's guilty hmm. pleasure. So what are you working on now? Do you have anything coming up or what should people uh, keep an eye out for? What the Spell, which is a prequel spinoff of Life's Witch, which is the book that became really popular online, that came out January 29th. So if people haven't gotten that, uh, you should definitely take a look. And then a new and improved Life's a Witch is coming out July 9th. And then um, the sequel to Life's a Witch called The Witch is Back is going to be coming out January of 2014. Um, and besides that, I've been, I'm working on getting ready to pitch another series and looking forward to hopefully in the future, this will, um, the Life's a Witch will be made into a movie or a television show. We've had some interest, so we'll see about that. All right, cool. So I think we're going to wrap things up there. So Brittany, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. And thanks again to Joe Hill for being our guest today. Thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including Alistair Coates, Santa Call, Westus Wolf, The Prince of Space, and Knight of Cups. And big thanks to Johan Lucas Arenberg and Christopher Brown for becoming subscribers number 44 and number 47. To see a list of all our subscribers, visit our website at geeksgunshow.com and click on subscribe. All right, so that was our show. Thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your hosts, visit johnjosephadams.com or davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by Slipgate 9 Entertainment. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.